I mean, you, you mean to tell me that uh, toughness three, one wound, and a six up save doesn't do it for you? <laughs> I'm going to say you know, I'd be fine playing against that. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about playing sure you as it, playing with it, not against it. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that has the cure for what ails the greater good. I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. Uh, no, Richard. He is in the grasp of Nurgle today, so he has no voice and he must scream. I think we've all been fighting it. Yeah, I fought it, it all last it's week. It's been going around. Summer, like early summer colds have been going around. Like my family's been hit with it a couple of times. So, uh, but we're going to carry on without him. And uh, if you didn't guess from the intro, uh, today we are talking uh, data sheet doctors tau edition we are going to look at four units from the tau empire that were submitted by viewers as units that need help units that might make it onto the battlefield but don't for some reason or other or just need a touch up and i will say we've got a couple of doozies on this one uh, <laughs> when i put forward the list kevin how did you phrase it i said wow i don't know if we're that good like <laughs> we're good but not that good <laughs> well, we'll I mean, get- we came up with we came up with a semi-pseudo uh, solution for mutilators, so maybe? <laughs> and see, Kevin, for this, we, we can't just be normal good. We have to be the greater, greater We have good. to be the greatest good they're going <sighs> to get. Ah. <sighs> so, uh... <laughs> But obviously, before that, news and new releases and your listener mail. And uh, news and new releases is really going to be a repeat from the last two episodes, and that's Contrast Paint. Uh, that is all that has really been pushed. Hey, I'm getting excited for them. <laughs> I know. It's, and I'm, I, I am excited. Uh, this weekend, we're recording on the weekend of June 8th, June 9th. Uh, so this episode, by the time this episode is out, they should be available in stores. They went up for pre-order yesterday. This weekend, Games Workshop stores have been, at least yesterday, I'm hoping they're still doing it today, uh, doing Contrast Paint Day, where they had a bunch of prime, you know, models primed in the two new primers, and were lo- allowing people to sit down and, and give it a spin and, and try applying that one thick coat and seeing how it works. And I've been seeing some very interesting results. You're also seeing a lot of our regular YouTube painters, uh, putting out their sample videos because Games Workshop, you know, send out samples to all the the major outlets and are having them try it out. And they're kind of showing, like, what can you do, what can't you do, uh, what works, what doesn't. Um, For example, flat surfaces like Imperial vehicles, no no bueno. No bueno on those. (laughs) Um, Those are... that, That just gets really splotchy. I've tried doing large washes over Imperial vehicles and it, yeah, it, it doesn't look good. Those are still going to be brush or, you know, or airbrush jobs mostly, but seeing a lot of stuff, especially the, the brighter tones, which have been traditionally very hard to pull off things like yellows, bright reds, oranges, those tend to be really solid. Um, seeing some neat stuff with their, the leather tones also like the, the beiges and, and wood tones. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm excited to play around with them. I'm curious to see how it goes. Uh, if nothing else, there even if I don't end up doing my Blood Angels in contrast paints, I have a Daughters of Cain army for Age of Sigmar that I think this will be perfect for. 
So I'm cu- I'm I'm excited for that, and I'll be trying them out on the Havocs. So we'll see how they go with that. Yeah, I just have a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be painted. So I've got a lot of options. <laughs> Which and if that's the case, you know, this is the kind of thing that Games yeah. Workshop is putting the paint out for. So that that's a good thing. And you're already also starting to see a lot of the memes popping up on like Facebook of, hey, everybody, this guy doesn't like the contrast paints and isn't going to use them. See, no one cares. Because, <laughs> you know, you're getting the pushback from people like, oh, I think it looks like crap. Well, fine. It's not for you. Okay. It's you know, fine. Don't use it. But I'm also seeing a lot of pro painters who are like, yeah, this is this is this will speed up. Like even if it's just like this is going to be the base for what I do, and then I can apply details and and highlights and things on top of that. Uh, Darren Latham, who does work for Games Workshop, uh, was uh, had a demonstration on Facebook and Instagram of how to do non-metallic metals with uh, con- with just contrast paints. Nice. So, uh, and he's like, this is just way faster than doing it the traditional way. So it's. Uh, you know, so you're seeing you're seeing people like turning out, like figuring out how to use these to great effect already. So it, it's it's a cool line to see. Also, I'm happy to see that they're expanding their other lines. You know, this is they're very clear that this is not a replacement for the traditional paint system. That this is a parallel line you can use, and they've especially for people like they filled out a lot of the horse heresy base colors. That's why they so they've added. A lot of base tones to their base and layer and airlines that match colors from those armies. So it's a lot of stuff that it was previously available as like Forge World air paints that are being mm-hmm. rolled into like the main paint line. So that is also cool to see that it's not just uh, contrast and forget everything else. And they've been putting out new, uh, like new tutorial videos showing like here's how to do different thematic effects. And again, they're not all contrast paints. That in fact, I'd say a lot of them are light maybe using the contrast paint as a base or not using it at all and just doing a lot of it uses like they're showing how to do dry brush they're basically trying to show here's how you can do some cool effects very quickly Mm -hmm. yeah that new citadel paint website they launched two weeks ago or whatever yeah is is just chock full of awesome stuff Mm -hmm. and and they've been rolling all that out to warhammer tv as well so whether you're following on checking out their website or following on youtube yeah, they're trying to make sure that they're getting this out there in front of everyone. So, because they want to encourage people not to just have painted armies, which is that that right there is a is an awesome goal, but to also figure out how to do neat painted armies that in a way that like doesn't feel overwhelming to people. Okay, I will mm-hmm. say, unless there's an update I didn't see, the Citadel Paint app has not been updated yet. It has not. Okay. No. No. But I, they may wait until they're actually available for sale and roll it out then, or that may, makes sense. or it may be later this week. You know, Apple usually has like a couple of day delay on between when an app update is submitted and when it's like rolled out to the public. So we may, you know, we may see it on the fourteenth. We may see it a few days earlier. But yeah, I, I imagine they'll update that app. I, I find that app to be very useful. You know, just to like I need to figure out how to do this technique quickly, and I don't want to do a lot mm-hmm. of experimentation. Here's something that's pretty close, and I'll go with that. So the thing I thought was really cool is how they kind of did the release. Um, you know, everything's up a pre-order now, but if you, at least for a limited time, so I don't know for sure if this will still be up when uh, when this episode drops, but they've got a thing where you can do, like, your battle-ready paint set. So you can pick four base colors, two shades, three contrasts, and one technical co- uh, paint for fifty-seven fifty. And I, I went and I did one of those and I think it was originally going to be like 70 or $80 worth of paint. So it's a pretty solid discount and you can kind of customize it for exactly what you want. So yeah, uh, kudos to them for, for putting that out 
putting that out there. That That's a very cool way to get people started with it and make it uh, easy for people to get in. Yep. Four bases, three contrasts, two shades, and one technical. So whether that's a, a medium or a... They're, they're retiring the glaze line because contrast pretty much replaces that. Mm-hmm. But maybe you want to get some Nurkle's Rot or Typhus Corrosion or Blood for the Blood God, you know. I really like that blue glaze for like energy effects. I do, but they've all like they've already shown how to do it with the blue contrast paint. Okay, that, like you basically mm-hmm. take some of their medium, thin out the contrast paint with that a bit, and apply it. And it's because basically, so from what they've said, we've had contrast paints available the first draft of them for a little while. Was Hex Wraith and Ethereal like the when mm-hmm. when they came out with like the. The, you know, when New Age of Sigmar, Night Haunt. Yeah, Night yeah. Ha- yeah, when they came out with the Night Haunts, they added that those blue and green like technicals. Night, that, ha- Night Haunt Gloom and Hex Wraith Flame. Yes. Those were apparently the first iteration, like some of their first experiments with making a contrast paint. It didn't quite turn out the way they wanted, but it still gave really good effects and happened to fit those armies well. So they they kind of reformulated the pigment for those, like pick the pigments for those two shades and then went back to the drawing board. And now we have contrast paint, contra- you know, like the actual contrast paints, but it, it's really cool to see that, you know, yes, the, gla- like the glazes are going away, but they're what we're getting in exchange is way better than those glazes. Uh, one mm-hmm. thing I've also seen is when you are painting with contrast paints, uh, be sure, like, and if you have, like, I'm doing this area in this color and then this area in this color. So, for example, Dennis, you're painting your Havocs. You're going to do their armor in, like, pinkish purple, and then you're going to do the guns probably in black or silver. Or lead belcher, Lead yeah. belcher. But let's let's say you decide to do, like, uh, like use the Black Templars black on, the like, the base of, the like, the body of the gun. Make sure your purple is dry because the pigment wants to run into any wet medium it can find got it so it'll just blur blur right in also it is still a water even though you're not supposed to mix it with water because it will kind of break up how the medium works it's still water-based enough like i was wondering if you could paint this on reaper bones and kind of you know because reaper bones is one of those you know it's like you can paint directly on the model you don't have to prime it but gw paints are water-based enough that really hydro bones is kind of a hydrophobic material it it rejects water like it pushes it away uh yeah it does the same thing on with contrast paints it does not stain at all it just like the paint basically beads on it and runs off mm. uh, if you prime it it's fine but then yeah but yeah so but if you prime any model you can paint it with contrast paints <laughs> and i've also seen people starting to experiment with like doing different like not just using the gw like the the gray seer and wraith bones primers but playing around with doing zenithal highlights or even like some uh mi- uh mini wargamer uh on their facebook page they've been showing like how to paint uh like two different flavors of imperial fists with it and of course they're you know the yeah like i said the yellows in this line are really good but they've been basing like spraying the model with zandri dust first and then using Wraithbone for the Zenithal highlights. So it tones it down a bit and brings it more of that warmer tan color. But it's still mostly... But the contrast paints... will It's still got enough highlights. The contrast paint sits on it well without being like really darkly shaded. So um, check out those tutorial videos. They've been doing some neat stuff there. 
Yeah, I saw someone else, and it may may have been Mini Wargamer, but or somewhere online where that someone was using um, lead belcher spray mm-hmm. as a uh, as a base for it to get really cool uh, metallic effects. Yeah, I think that's what we talked up for me to pick up for the Havocs was start with lead belcher, mm-hmm. and then because that would give you nice shiny, uh, right? Yeah, sh- you know, shiny em- Emperor's Children, and it's cool. Like it, it is going to work with different ways like you can there's plenty of room to experiment and find like new techniques to do with this so i i, I it's going to be a cool paint line i'm i'm ex- i am excited to try it out and uh but yeah other than that nothing has been announced for anything this is the big june releases their paint line so uh so with that we'll just switch right over to listener mail as always all these letters are written by you the listeners and when we're done with the segment we'll tell you how you can get uh, your letter read on the show uh so first up uh is a letter from darren that's the only name we have we have darren there's a couple on here where we just have first names so we'll just have to go with it uh darren writes hey guys your talk of the old space marines versus primaris pushed me over the edge and i finally had to say something about it the reason it stirred me up so is because I'm in this hobby for the story, with the models being a close second. It's neat that you can play a game with this stuff. Maybe I'll get to that someday. I'm sending you this email to bring to your attention a passage from a recent book that will clear this whole mess up. Yeah, right. That, that's him saying that. We're, we're not, I'm not saying yeah, right. I'm not trying. <clears throat> it's from Dark Imperium by Guy Haley on page 307 in the paperback, and it reads, <clears throat> quote, and Gilliman had been careless with the feelings of his existing sons. Increasingly, Gilliman looked to the Primaris Space Marines as his first solution. He made no attempt to hide the fact that the days of the oldest Space Marines were numbered. Unquote. Uh, the way I see it is if Coach ain't putting you on the field, you need to do something different or hang up the jock strap. So from a business and fluff standpoint, it looks like the old Marines put on their coat and hat, but they haven't left the party yet. I know I'm no help on the gaming aspect, but it's obvious where the story is going. Thanks for the great podcast, Darren. I mean, I think we kind of all see that coming, but at the same time, GW has done everything to let you still play older models on the tables, aka see the indexes that are still around. Yep. Well, my hope is that they do something like really cool with this, because I would love to see like some sort of like, I don't know, Horus Heresy 2 or something like that, or some sort of like civil war between like where the Imperium kind of splits up and like these, a lot of these uh, space marine chapters like go renegade or something. So ha- have like, like I think there's renegade, some really chaos cool... and Imperial. Yeah. I think there's some, there's some really cool area for, for story there if they decide to go that route. And then you could keep those models in the, in the game and still have, still kind of have a use for them. That would be interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and this point was also brought up in, uh, like, I, I read the novel of uh, Devastation of Ball, which is also by Guy Haley, and the, at the at the end, um, Gilliman and the Indominus Crusade finally show up on Ball and uh, unload a bunch of, you know, Blood Angels Primaris for them, and, and the same point is brought up by, like, the survivors of the Tyranid attack, as it's like... Gabriel Seth and Dante and some of the other like high ranking characters that survived are sitting around. They're like, yeah, these guys are going to replace us. You know, yep. I, I imagine there will still be traditional Marines made because the gene seed, I don't know if they can update gene seed from a regular Marine into premier. Like if they have to send that well, off to call to get did, updated, didn't they do that with Calgar. Calgar is Calgar is the only Space Marine to be updated 
as an as a fully formed space marine. Right. And yeah, it killed him, and then they brought him back. He's the only one. But I'm I'm talking more like when they when they collect gene seed from when they harvest gene seed from dead. Oh, marines, okay, yeah. From dead marines, like, yeah. do they have to like do are I because I got the impression that like call basically drops off the technology to make new Primaris marines with each chapter, but like, do they have to? run the uh the old gene seed through a primarisification process and then it from then on it just makes primaris or like how that how does that work but yeah that you do get the impression like they're not going to be cranking a lot of uh, cranking out a lot of regular space marines from this point that it's mostly right. going to be you know attrition will eventually wear out the old breed and then it'll just be primaris yeah, that's that. That is definitely gonna a thing that's gonna have storyline wise. Yeah, that's let's face it, Primaris are what the future of the Space Marines is gonna look like. Gameplay wise, we still need to make sure that tacticals are useful. Yeah, yeah, because if they're gonna be in the game, then they we need to they need to have a role. Yeah, they need to be a viable option. They need there needs to be a a build where they makes you know where it makes sense to use them as opposed to right now where it's either you run scouts or you run Primaris or you run Primaris and scouts, but nobody runs tacticals so there, yeah there needs to be a middle ground and we just gw has not found that yet and also let's be honest there's the sales aspect of how much is it worth to them to make the middle ground right now and encourage people to buy up tactical marines uh, i kind of like yeah. kevin's idea of, of the Civil second War. schism i mean have re- both i mean they don't fall to chaos but they're just like like are fed up with being like Younger brother syndrome, of- or, or or the other way around, it could be like the the last holdouts, not uh, like a chapter or a few chapters, kind of band together and do kind of like a Badab War type thing, where it's like we're tired yeah. of we're tired of being pushed out and being replaced. Well, I kind of thought that's where they were going with uh, with the Blood Angels when they basically made the Great Rift like isolate ball uh-huh. and i'm like that would have been a really cool thing to like okay we're not gonna do anything with the blood angels for a little while we're gonna move the story ahead 30 years hey we come we finally break through and they formed their own empire and like now nah, we're not gonna listen to you anymore well like, um <laughs> at the end of like devastation of all uh dante's basically put in charge of that like everything on the far end of the rift yeah, that, because like so, Gilliman can't. It's like Gilliman's like I can't be here all the time. I've got to be on this side of the rift, but I need right. somebody who I trust to be on the other side. And Dante is like Dante's the old like the not counting Gilliman and technically mm-hmm. not counting any of the Primaris that were in stasis. Sure, because like it's pretty much established in uh, in another one of the books that like a, a lot of the Primaris were basically formed post like like shortly post heresy like once call figured out the process he was making them but then putting them in stasis so mm-hmm. some of them have memories of like for example like ultramars still being like the 500 the 500 stars like the 500 planet the 500 was the 500 worlds of ultramar yeah so that's so not counting those those instances and i guess bjorn Dante is the <laughs> the oldest living non dreadnoughted space marine. Space marine, yeah. And he's and it's even getting to the point where space marine biology stops working after like it doesn't work nearly as well a thousand years in. Like he's sure. he is visibly <laughs> aged quite a bit. 
Bjorn looks the same. I don't know what you're talking about. I said I non-dreadnoughted. Mean, would... Okay. <laughs> I would actually say that I think uh, Bjorn looks a lot better now than he used to be, like, just a few years ago. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. He got a new <laughs> shine and polish. Exactly. But no, like, I, I I, would be interested in them doing, like, some sort of Civil War thing, because I think that would be, A, a really cool, interesting way to, make, to move the story forward, a way to kind of split the Imperium faction as it is right now, because right now half the armies in the game are, you know, can vaguely be lumped into Imperium. You could split off a couple of these renegade space marine chapters into their own thing, make them and then just make the story a little more dynamic and then potentially have a spot to be like, hey, if you want to play your old, you know, your old tactical marines, here you go. This is these are the chapters you can use them in. Uh, Otherwise, here, you know, these are all the primaris chapters. Yeah, that that, that would be That'd be a good. That would way also to do be it. a radical shift in the storyline. Oh, too, it would though, be. So. It's like you'd have to wrap up the main. You'd kind of have to wrap up the main chaos storyline right now, and then like where get to a point where like chaos is still a th- a threat, but it can't be like the major mm-hmm. pressing threat that it is right exactly. now. All right. Next up is a letter from Johnny Jacivicius. I'm going to hope I pronounced that right. I probably didn't. That's kind of my thing. Uh, He writes, Hello, preferred enemies. I wanted to write in regarding a subject you touched on during your big FAQ3 episode. You all sounded rather exasperated with complaints that GW are updating the rules too frequently. I'll start by saying that I love the fact that Games Workshop have a finger on the pulse right now and are solving issues promptly. I'm a designer in the video game industry, and I understand the need to be able to implement balance changes quickly and efficiently. I play a number of GW's game systems and tend to play 40k once every month or so. My problem is not that they are keeping the game up to date. It's that these rules changes are scattered all over the place and that no one place I can go to to keep there's no one place I can go to to keep myself informed. As an example, off the top of my head, the big FAQ3 referred to rules from the following places. Main rule book for like wobbly models and aircraft. Multiple codex books, Imperial Knights, Eldari, and Index, Inari. Multiple issues of White Dwarf, Bolter Drill, Assassins. Previous big FAQ chapter approved, prepared position stratagem. If I wanted to use the current rule set, I have to keep checking several FAQs, designers' commentaries, White Dwarf, and any other supplements. It's a crazy amount of effort to keep up to date with the game, especially if 40k isn't your main or sole focus. We were fortunate enough to play a big game at Warhammer World this weekend, but a rules query regarding character targeting was brought up. The person questioning knew the wording of the rule from the wording of the rule from the core rules, but I knew it had been updated at some point. I ended up flicking through FAQs for 10 to 15 minutes, don't worry, the game was still progressing, before giving up and ended up finding what I was looking for in an article on a different community website. I don't think there's a particularly easy solution, but there are certain things that they could try. My suggestion would be to keep the digital copies of the books fully updated with any alterations or additions highlighted. That way I could flick through the couple of books I own and know everything I need to play. The only issue then being that people with physical copies are left wanting. Ideally, people who have bought new copies of physical books should also get the digital copy for free or at a heavy discount. Think codes that you used to get in old PC games. Apologies for the rant, but I think I'd add, I thought I'd add a little insight to the issue from my perspective. Let me know what you guys think. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Johnny from Stockport, UK. Yeah, it's definitely a fair point. Like, it's uh, rules are, are scattered all throughout a number of sources. At, at Midwest Conquest, there was a question that came up in during the friendly, and it wasn't like... It was a side question, like, you know, they resolved it during the game and they came up to me afterwards like, hey, where would I even find this? And it was a question about uh, one of the original beta rules that – and I don't remember which one it was now. But it was one of the original beta rules that 
came out after chapter approved 2017 and then was finalized. And they're like, where's the final version of that rule? Because it wasn't in chapter approved 2018. It wasn't in the big FAQ. And we found it that it was in uh, it was in like the main rulebook FAQ from like before the big FAQ. So it's just one of those where like even finding like where a finalized, you know, like it was like maybe the rule of three or something or, you know, finding that like took a while to, to find it. So there really needs to be a system to collate all of these updates that they have. Um, and I think I've mentioned it before, but I think the way they could do it is the way they did the Chaos Marine Codex after the Vigilus update. Just reprint, you know, like when you go and, uh, and do your uh, chapter approved at the end of the year, release chapter approved as, you know, the small hardback or small softback book that it is and release an updated big rule book alongside it or a small rule book would ideally. But then you have like if people don't want to buy all of the rules, or they already have a copy of the rule book. They can just buy chapter approved or they can buy the new rule book that has everything collated in it. Um, well, and really, I think this is supposed to be one of the goals of chapter approved. And I think they've kind of dropped the ball a little bit on that, that, Mm -hmm. you know, chapter approved is supposed to be the collected rules updates and like points updates and things like that. Um, and obviously we've talked about like, that's where we're going to see things like the assassins codec, you know, the assassins index, the NRE index. So hopefully those will be reprinted in chapter approved 2019. However, with the length of time to prep a print run and get it in, I mean, they like, they've already had the issues of, yeah, the, the Imperial Knights Codex came out too soon to put that stuff in chapter approved, like put any balance changes or points changes in chapter approved 2018. Knights came out like six months before chapter approved 2018. So we obviously there's at least you got to figure, okay, give them three months to collect enough data to make changes and everything. That means there's at least a three to four month lead time on getting a chapter approved put together. Um, Yeah, it's, it's going to be tricky to get all the updates, but that's really where like chapter approved should be where we're seeing like they should put every, I think every chapter approved should have the updated version of like the eight page at battle primer. Cause that's where you would mm-hmm. see your targeting characters updates, your aircraft updates. Like that should all be, there should be an annual book that has the most recent version of the rules that should be the, and there should be a, a place where they, yeah, they collect all the stuff that's been released the year before. Now, in the interim, yeah, you're still going to have sources all over the place. But also, maybe that's one of the downsides of ha- the way they're releasing the FAQ is, you know, while they're releasing it, you know, every, every six months or so, yeah, you do end up losing all the changes from the previous big FAQ version, and then you have to go find them in all the appropriate errata documents. Well, as yeah. long as each of the big FAQs kind of just you just go to the web page and you find everything there. Um, I think that would work, but I think part of the other problem is white dwarf is getting a lot of rules and indexes now. Yeah. And I mean, I think we may, I made this com complaint or something in seventh edition of like, how many books am I going to have to carry around for something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's now a valid complaint. Part of it, it, yeah, so part of it is keeping track of, like, where all the updates are landing and what FAQ documents and keeping track of that. And which is one of the reasons why they say for, like, tournament play, like, every tournament's like, bring all the stuff you need to run your army so it's right there. 
but that doesn't always carry over to like casual play where somebody or somebody who leans on like a battle scribe type list where well, even then nobody's bringing all of the facts cuz i mean i don't know that you you'd have to like print them out is that what they'd want us to do yeah i mean they're they're kind of leaning yeah. on the the idea that like well everyone's got digital devices now but yeah and mm-hmm. and granted most of the faq documents aren't huge except for the main rulebook one gets still still several pages and that's also where they've moved like the the flow chart of which index do i use and things like that or like where like where where do i like or can i use the index well you can if you use this this war gear option but uh i do like uh, johnny's uh suggestion and i know we've mentioned that i think we've mentioned this before the idea that a physical copy should get you a digital copy as well mm-hmm now, granted, there you have the difficulty of getting that system set up so it works with like Apple, I like the the Apple Bookstore and like where like Amazon or wherever you're getting your other digital copies from, uh, or if, if you're getting them. Well, obviously, if you're getting them directly from Black Libraries like EPubs or Mobies, and then you should be able to get get that handled pretty quickly. But yeah, it'd be nice to have some way to get a a digital copy. Now, I think they have been pretty good about updating. Digital copies, I don't know if they update with every bit of errata, but generally they've been, I believe they've been pretty good. I may be wrong. I haven't, I haven't picked up any of the digital codexes since 8th edition dropped, really. I, I mean, I picked up a number in 7th because a lot of them were only, like, there was a lot of stuff that was only available as a digital download. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Games Workshop, I, I will, I'll concede the point that Games Workshop could do a better job of consolidating the rules updates. I, I, I know it seems like Repetit's like, well, there's already a document that covers all the major rulebook updates, and that's the FAQ, but then it's finding the errata. It's like, just, yeah, put out an updated rulebook. Yep. It doesn't have to be a big rulebook, but you could just put an updated rulebook section in chapter approved, and, and that would be fine. Yeah, like, I mean, one of the advantages, like I said, is, you know, the the eight pages or whatever it is of of rules, you know, core rules, that there's no reason why that shouldn't be either reprinted every year in chapter approved with the new changes, or like a smaller version of that should be available regularly with the updates. Um, Because I'll be honest right now, like, I don't use my main rulebook for very much other than like, occasionally, I have to look up mission types and stuff. Mm-hmm. Most everything else is in, you know, is in the FAQ PDFs that I have on my on my phone or in my codex or, you know, in Battlescribe. So, yeah, I, I would love for them to, like, actually update. Hey, I'd love for them to update a, a softback version of the rulebook. I love the little rulebooks. Um, but you put that out and then that's much easier to keep updated with with uh, FAQs and changes as you go along. Yeah. Like, I'm looking at the contents for a chapter approved right now and... Yeah, eventually we're going to have to the book would either have to would start having to get thicker cuz I'm like looking at this like, well man, there's 30 pages for the beta codex for sisters, but then I think about well, but then there's going to be how many pages of Inari and assassins and if we get one or two other mini factions, like if we get an inquisition mm-hmm. mini faction index or something like that, you know, you add all that up, that's going to be about 30 pages or so. Uh there's like six pages on not on renegade knights which that'll be replaced by the chaos knights codex but even then there's like eight pages on the eight 
which this is the yep. only place where the eight exists, which also makes me think, yeah, chapter proof 2019 won't have the rules for the eight. You'll have to hold on to your chapter proof 2018. Yep. Which is already makes this a bit different than the, like the age of Sigmar, uh, general's handbook. And it, it looks like even on, uh, the age of Sigmar stuff, there's like, the General's Handbook that's coming out in July is actually going to be split into two books. One is going to be the General's Handbook, and then one is going to be like a very thin, like probably like $5 pamphlet that they released that is all the points changes. So if you, if all you care about is, I just need to know the points changes for my army, you buy a yep. $5 book. And maybe Chapter Approved could have that. It's like somebody, I don't want, I don't need all the stuff out of Chapter Approved. I just want to know what's the balance updates. Five bucks, boom, here you go. This is... But also, Age of Sigmar is a little bit easier in that that $5 pamphlet is basically all the point costs for every unit in the game, whereas we don't do that necessarily for game, so workshop games because you have to track every the point cost of every piece of war gear as well. But True. still, having one booklet where all that was in one place, even if a lot of yeah. it didn't change, would be great. Yeah, no, I agree. Like listing out every piece of war gear. And I mean, just kind of like we did with the indexes and stuff, just listing out that and making that available would make would make it a, a much easier process. Or, or even just like a matched playbook where it's like, OK, mm-hmm. here here is like three or four pages of here's all the match play rule updates. Like here's your tactical reserves update. Here's your uh, prepared positions update. Here's your like like here's all the rules that we've applied to matched play. Like here's the organized event chart with the rule of three on it. Here's all the all the match play updates, and now here's all the point costs because that's primarily for match play. Boom, release that, and then have a general's handbook yeah. that can just be full of like here's all the stuff we collected from White Dwarf. Here's some new narrative ideas. Here's some new missions that mm-hmm. can and that make that a separate upgrade. And then those are those are the books you buy those every year, and then theoretically. Let's say you're playing a mono codex army. You have your codex, you have your match play update, and you have general's handbook if there's anything else you want. And that should theoretically be everything you need to play the game. So. GW, reach, you have your people reach out to our people. We'll uh, we can we can workshop this a little bit more, or or, or and, you can just uh, steal and, the ideas from the podcast and not, no, not credit no, us wanna, at all. <laughs> I want to get credit for it because I want to. I still want to trip to Nottingham out of all of this. <laughs> So yeah, have your people get with our people, even though we really don't have people. Yeah, we but, don't um, have people. We are people. We are people. <laughs> we can be people. <laughs> I do a very good job of pretending to be a person from time to time. <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on. Moving on. Next letter is from William. Again, only first name. And William writes, Hey, guys. I've been loving the Datasheet Doctor segments. It's a great addition to the show. I was excited to hear the tower coming up soon. Sooner than you think. Coming up next. Uh, as they are my main faction. Although they have been doing great on the tournament scene lately, I feel the tower in a very bad place right now. I love my tower. I really do. But they're just unfun for both sides. More accurately, they are frustrating and tedious to go up against. And when playing as Tau, it's easy to feel wistful looking at the psychic and assault units and feel like you're missing out. Maybe part of this is just because I remember how the Tau played in 7th when you functionally got a second movement phase with the jump-shoot-jump tactic, making the tactical positioning game much more dynamic and nuanced, while making my force feel, ironically, like a school of fish. Anyway, the one unit I feel is in need of desperate help is the one that is the ultimate fun sucker. Drones. Savior Protocols is a terrible mechanic, and here's why. One. 
Knowing what you are attacking functionally has a two-up invuln because it's standing near some drones that you can't even see or charge, deflates people's sails before they even start rolling to hit. This bait-and-switch gimmick to deploying my drones makes me feel cheap. Two, all battle suits other than stealth suits have a tire toughness than drones. This makes drones T7 when tanking hits for a rep- riptide or T8 for the Talnar. It's not like Grot Shield where the toughness values of both units are going to be close. At least with Grot Shield, you're probably firing an anti-infantry gun at the Ludas in the first place, not wait, having LAS cannons get redirected to Frisbees. Three, it slows the game down noticeably. Savior protocols have to be done in sequence, which creates lots of times when you have to roll smaller batches of Savior protocol two-ups, followed by five-up feel-no-pains that are equal to the number of drones left. It reminds me of the old Death Star tank characters from 7th, rolling saves for 30 wounds in batches of 3 to 4. Four, it kills diversity in drone selection. The most the highly competitive drones right now are sniper drones and shield drones. Both are great for staying on the board long enough to tank shots for other units. Although sniper drones are nice snipers too, the Firesight Marksmen are most often in a Sasea detachment, and both Savior Protocols and Drone Uplink are set-blocked. The sep- sniper drones are going into a Tau-Sept detachment with the units they want to protect. Five, the biggest problem, it's awesome! Having a mechanic that dampens the game and sucks fun and time isn't a problem when it's not useful and never gets used. I'm a fan of weird esoteric rules for units that rarely get used, but add a little flavor. Savior Protocols is a problem because it's everywhere in a towel list, so it constantly gets triggered. And why wouldn't it be? It's great. I'm not one to complain. I'm not just one to complain and not offer a fix, however, so here's what I think would work. Dumpster Savior Protocols. Go back to drones in the units that purchase them. You would need to add an addendum to use majority toughness like Death Watch mixed toughness units. Or better yet, just have the drone's toughness not considered for wounding unless the unit is only drone models. That way, as Tau players still get to use them as a blade of wounds, but a more reasonable degree. The specialist and add-on drones might be taken a little more because they don't become their own squad after being deployed, which makes them easy to eliminate and great for your opponent's skill points. You might actually see some more uncommon drones taken, like the Pulse Accelerator or Shielded Missile Drones. Uh, Just a few thoughts. I can't wait to hear the next episode. William. Okay, so this is the first letter I've ever received from someone who says a rule in their own faction is too good. (laughs) And I I am not being facetious. Hats off to you, because I don't disagree with him. I, yeah, no, I, no. Save I don't think any of us do. We've 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 kind of silently complained about drones for a couple of years yeah, now. Yeah, I'm yeah. like I'm working on my army for Show Me Showdown, and I'm just gonna put this out there. I'm bringing the town art, and I'm bringing 15 shield drones to sit behind it and just tank wounds for it. So you're gonna have more drones than I have models, probably, right? Very probably. Yeah, <laughs> if you're playing the Custodes army, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you're do doing Custodes. Project Orion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so we're we're gonna be Team Big Forge World going into Show Me Showdown because he's <laughs> taking the Orion, I'm taking the Townar, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I'm like I'm like 15 shield drones, and like most Tau armies are like the builds you see generally have a ton of shield drones mm-hmm. and or a ton of fire warriors. Often both because fire warriors are dirt cheap for what you get. So um, yeah, uh, save your protocols is too good at the same time i having the like having the drones as unit upgrades the way they used to be it would be very different from it'd be a major redesign for eighth because eighth has kind of been built with this entire model of every upgrade unit you like everything you can take as like an upgrade or every time you have 
two different models in the same unit, they become like separate units. Except Death Watch. Yeah, Death, yeah. Wa- Death Watch is a is a rare case. But then even then, with the exception of what the bikes is, it's just the bikes that are T five and everything else is T four, right? Right. But your movements right. are different. Your rules are different. I mean, they kind of you get bonuses for like having the Terminator. You get bonuses for having that the jump pack, and you get bonus for the bike. Right. But you don't get all the same rules that you would if it was like a bike squad or a Terminator squad type mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. No, I I agree. I, I There definitely needs to be something changed because right now drones are just too good. And yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, I don't know. It's I, I The big one that I agree with is the fact that it just slows the game down so much. Um, you know, you, cause you have to roll everything separate. You have to, you know, track everything. And it's just, it, it makes playing the army tedious. Yeah. And frankly, that's kind of one of the reasons why I don't play my towel hardly anymore. It's, they're really tedious to play and they're not fun to play against either. And if you, at least competitively, if you aren't playing shield drones, then your army doesn't do as well because the tower kind of built mm-hmm. with the expectation that they're there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like you said, like it's an awesome rule, so you have to take advantage of it if you want to win games. Um, but yeah, it's there needs to be a there needs to be a redesign, I think, because it's uh, we, we talked about this before about diversity and list building things like that. Tower effectively a one trick pony. They have one gimmick and. You have to just completely double down on that to for to have any level of success, or, or and that's not that's not fun at list building. Maybe this is like you said with the the renegade space marine idea. Maybe this is the drones. One of them finally gets an AI that becomes sentient, <laughs> and they rebel because it's there's more of them than there are Tau. Codex Codex Tau drone <laughs> or Codex AI Codex AI. Now there's there's one other hmm. there's one I think there's a middle ground between the idea of doing nothing and just leaving things as they are because obviously that's sure. that's not good and ditching savior pro- protocols entirely I I don't think savior savior protocols as it is I think it's I, I think it's a decent mechanic I think the problem is being able to take units of tactical drones if yep. I could not take a unit of shield drones, like a big blob unit of shield drones, but if I was limited to the two-off units of shield drones that like you can take as unit upgrades for a lot of units, if I was limited to that, and if the shield drones could only intercept wounds for the unit they were taken with, yeah, then shield drones... Yeah, you take a couple as an ablative wounds... So they'll give you, they're basically, they give you like a couple of like one-off invulns, but then once you're through those like two, like, cause you, like each unit can only take, like each model, you say each model can take two. So a Riptide can take two, a Crisis Suit can take two, a unit of three Crisis Suits can take six because it's two per model, but they could only still block the wounds for those three Crisis Suits, which, hey, that's an idea for later in the episode. Right. Um, <laughs> but... Like right now, like I said, I'm I'm going to take like three units of five and just line them up behind my town R and they'll just absorb shots for the town R or they'll absorb shots for Shadow Sun or the Ghost Kill if it happens to be nearby or the 
ethereal that's nearby or like whatever else that happens to be infantry or battle suit. And right. I think that's the problem is that it's a blade of wounds for whatever that can move around and, and still be a blade of wounds. But if it's like, Oh yeah, I took a riptide and he's got two shield drones. Okay. And what about the, like, what about the rest of the drones? Oh no, that's, that's his two. That's what he gets, which then that makes the shielded missile drone. Like, do I want just a shield drone or do I want to pay a few more points and have a shield drone that can also shoot? Because those are the only two sure. shield drones he's going to get. That would make those right. more viable options as well. No, that's true. That's a that's a good idea. Because I really think that that's where the option comes in. Or, okay, go ahead and put leave saber protocols in, but you can only take units of gun drones, or you can only take like either gun like no, actually, you can take units of gun drones. You still have saber protocols, but they don't have the five up feel no pain. If they take a hit, they just die. Because that's the other. That's what slows it down. Is the shield drones have that five up feel no pain, right? But but even then, I'd say no. Keep the rule where okay. If you take a unit of tactical drones, they're not stepping in front of anybody. They're just gonna. They're just there to shoot. That's their job. If you t- attach them to a unit, their unit is to supplement and protect that unit. That might be a way to do it. Now, you, the downside is you would have to track each unit of drones, and so you know which unit it's paired with, which. Mm-hmm could lead some unscrupulous players to doing some shenanigans, which, I mean, that's just a thing you have to watch, you'd have to watch and keep track of. But I think, I think that might be, because I like the Savior Protocols mechanic, but it needs to be toned down. But the only way to really, like, if you make it a, happen on like a four up instead of a two up, it's too unreliable to use. Yeah. And, and then you've gone too far the other way. But the problem, the really, the problem is being able to take big blobs of drones that can, work for anything yeah absolutely now that's like i said that's kind of why i like the idea of just going back to them being part of the unit because then then the then that eliminates uh that eliminates your ability to you know move they have to stay in unit coherency so that it's like no these are the these are with that unit so that yeah but and i think you could easily just put in an exception that yeah their toughness doesn't count when they're in part of a unit you know, for for factoring in, uh, you know, for factoring in uh, to wound rolls and stuff. Unless you just ignore their drones. toughness. Yeah, unless it's a unit of all drones. Yeah, like I would, think that's an easy enough. I think that's an easy enough uh, solution. Yeah, no, that would that would also work. So, but yeah, I think we're all in agreement. Something something needs to be done to to bring that mechanic in a, a bit because mm-hmm. it's. Like you said, it def- it's the tactic that now defines the Tau army. And whereas, and I think Johnny's right. Like whereas it used to be like jump, shoot, jump, and the extra mobility that Tau used to have, it would made it annoying to fight against them. But only until you could catch up with them and pin them down. Right. Because right. yeah, when I think of Tau, I think jump, shoot, jump, and I think long range weapons. Yeah, and now you don't really think the long range weapons that much anymore. I mean, they're still there, but. But the jump shoot jump is gone, and yeah, it's like there's they they now just like what do you know them for having to chew? Th- it's like trying to fight like seventh edition Necrons. That army wasn't fun to play against either because you just had to sit there and chew through all the ex like all the wounds and the reanimation protocols and everything. And this is just creating that only slightly different. But please don't fix this like you fixed Necrons because Necrons are 
kind of bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I liked playing my 7th edition Necrons. Okay. I'm sure you liked <laughs> playing them. I, I did not enjoy playing against 7th edition Necrons. Especially, Get good, noob. Well, especially since I spent a lot of the latter part of 7th edition playing Sisters, and Sisters were not good against 7th right. right. edition Necrons, which That's was fair. thematically appropriate. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then moving on to our last letter from Dennis McNair. We have a last name on this one. Uh, Dennis writes, hey, preferred gentemies, a fusion of a portmanteau of gentlemen and enemies. Uh, Dennis here from Canada. Huge fan of your podcast. I only discovered your podcast this month, which I would have found it years ago. I listen to you all while I work, and it makes my day go by much faster and keeps me sane during the slow, grindy days. Keep up the outstanding work. Well, thank you, Dennis. I've been slowly building up a Death Guard army as a hard break from Drukhari, so this is my 2,000-point list I'm building towards. I like my list to perform well, but also have a good fluff aspect and balance to them. I don't like chasing the new hotness, and I find Lords of War to be tactically boring and lazy, hence no Mortarian, despite him being super powerful. So here's his list. He calls it the Rupturous Glory. Uh, It's a 120PL 2,000-point list. Uh, He has one battalion. Uh, he has a Chaos Lord, uh, with the, his, who is his Warlord. He just has a Combi Bolter, a Power Fist, and he has the Arch Contaminator uh, Warlord trait and f- is wearing Fugars' Helm as an artifact. He has a Malignant Plate Caster with Miasma Pestilence and Putrescent Vitality. Uh, he has Typhus. He has a unit of 11 Cultists with Auto Guns, a Heavy Stubber, and then the Champ with an Auto Gun. A unit of a uh, unit of seven plague marines with a plasma gun and a blight launcher and a plasma gun on the champ. No power fist though. Uh, a unit, uh, let's see, a second, yeah, so two units of those. And then a unit of 20 pox walkers and a unit of 14 pox walkers. A biologist putrefier, which is the grenade, like the blight grenade character. Mm-hmm. A unit of Blight Lord Terminators with uh, the champ has a bubotic axe and a combi bolter. Uh, one has a flail of corruption. Uh, the other three have bubotic axes. One has a Reaper auto cannon and two have combi bolters. A foul blight spawn, which is the uh, basically the poison flamer character. Uh, two bloat drones with plague spitters and plague probes and three plague burst crawlers, one with two plague spitters and a heavy slugger and the other two having entropy cannons and heavy sluggers. He continues, my strategy is the Lord and, Lord and Plague Caster move up with the Plague Marines and Blight Spawn and Biologist downfield, supported by the Plague Spitter Crawler, flanked by the Bloat Drones. Entropy Crawlers hang out and take pot shots at things either sitting on an objective or somewhere with good fields of fire, bubble wrapped by the cultists. Poxwalkers screen for the Marines, Terminators deep strike to either claim an objective or... F- uh, funnel opponents towards the Marines. Typhus deep strikes wherever needed, preferably near the Terminators for some delicious blades of putrefaction buffing. The bloat drones can claim objectives as needed or provide close fire support for the Marines. Same with the plague, plague spitter crawler. Things I'm considering. Dropping the biologist for another foul, foul blight spawn. I love the biologist model so much, and I love his force multiplying effects, especially in combination with the blight bombardment stratagem for the nearby Marines. However, there's so few opportunities to use it What with all the assault armies that can reliably charge from millions of inches away this edition, especially when compared to the Blight Spawn, who seems to be so damn good at killing anything at short range. 
Also dropping Typhus for a Demon Prince with wings. More mobility is sorely needed with Death Guard. He's just as killy, and with the separating plate relic, he's very tough to take off the board. Losing one cast kind of sucks, though. More Smite Plague Winds is always nice, but I love the Lord of Contagion conversion to Typhus I've done. Super simple, yet looks great. And Typhus's rules and lore are deliciously fluffy. Also should mention that although the list in Battlescribe is all in one battalion detachment, I'd run Typhus and the three elites as a vanguard detachment for one more command point. Okay, fair enough. Uh, thanks for bearing with my long-windedness. Excited to hear all your opinions. Much love from Canada, Dennis McNair. So as someone who has run Typhus, I've actually run a mm. list that's not entirely different from this. I don't use the cultists. And um, so first off, I don't like the Chaos Lord. Because yes. the Chaos Lord gets none of the benefits from, Ex- exactly. from this army. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So actually, he was talking about potentially adding in a Demon Prince, which I think is a really good idea. Yeah. The Demon Prince is 60 more points than the Chaos Lord. So if he were to drop the... Uh, which one is it? The uh, the grenade guy. The biologist. That's 60 points. So, and I, I think it's 61 points, I guess, for the Demon Prince, because it's like slightly more. But he's got a few points left over, because I think the list comes out to 1,996. I put it into Battlescribe earlier. So, okay. so this list comes out to 1,997 1, points. Uh-huh. So he's got three points left over. If he drops the Putrefire, he can upgrade the Chaos Lord to a Demon Prince. It's going to fit synergistically with everything a lot better. If he wants to put the uh, Demon Prince with wings, uh, that is a few extra points. Um, Let me see here real quick. It's 24 points. So what I would maybe recommend at that point is drop, maybe drop a, you know, a Marine out of each of the two seven-man Plague Marine units. Oh, but they're seven-man units. That's so fluffy. I know, but... Um, uh, you could drop like drop a cultist and four poxwalkers or something like that. Yeah, or something I mean, like that. So there's a couple options. Yeah, but I think you definitely want to keep Typhus if you're going to keep the poxwalkers. Oh yeah, because Typhus makes poxwalkers so much better, the, the, uh, and you don't want to lose that synergy. Yeah, yeah. He'd have to like you'd want if he's going to deep strike him in. He'd have to deep strike them in near the poxwalkers, which that's a bit tricky because if the poxwalkers are screening, it means they're going to be closer to enemy units so getting him mm-hmm. within nine is it's the placement will be a bit tricky but it's doable yeah I, I would i would probably shy away from that honestly i'd probably just start typhus on the board with the box walkers well um, but as he also points out and i've run into this myself when i run typhus and box walkers is typhus is slow he is very <clears> slow he is he is he has uh you know he is a death guard terminator which means he moves four inches <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he's in cataphracty armor, so his advances are also halved. So yep. he's moving at best seven inches a turn, probably only five. Right. In no, all honesty, I, so. Yeah. No, like he is slow, but I, I, I just think that it, he's probably better used being, being with the Poxwalkers, um, and being able to kind of pop off psychic abilities, you know, from a little bit deeper on the board um, as board control. And, and that's the other thing is Poxwalkers. Four, they also only move four inches, so using them as a screen. Now, granted, they can advance because there's nothing that they're you know, they're not giving up any shooting, right? <laughs> but yeah, they're basically going to be moving up and screening. Yeah, so as long as you can keep a place to drop Typhus near there, that's fine. I mean, yes, you could also drop him near the uh, Blight Lord Terminators, and I think that you know Typhus becomes kind of your ace in the hole. He goes wherever you need him to be. Yeah. 
Um, I personally like I I've done the mixed special weapons on Plague Marines, and I get why you know you want to have two identical units. So if you lose one, you don't you're not out anything. I tend to like to kind of double up on my weapons. So like I would put the pla- two plasma guns in one, two blight launchers in the other, just so like I can kind of. Ha- it's like I can point this unit at this thing and know that it's going to be good again. Like I can kind of target prioritize a bit better, but that's just a that's a personal choice. Uh, this this is that that would be just fine. The camping two entropy can- cannon uh, plague burst crawlers in the in the back is very dependent on having good good lines of fire. Though I would almost rather have one with entropy cannons going up with the other. Like if it's moving up. I'd almost mm-hmm. rather have that one moving up because then it's going to be able to see more things. Whereas the the one sitting in back, you have the plague spitters basically as self defense in case anything gets back there. See, well, the entropy cannons are good. They're very short range and they're heavy. So if you move, you're only then hitting on fives. True. Um. So it, I prefer taking the the plague spitters. On all of them, uh, mm-hmm. because then you can move and you can still hit. I understand why he's not why he took the entropy cannons though, because they're three they're four points cheaper. So, are they? To add, yes, yeah. The the entropy cannons are thirty points. The plague spitters are thirty four. So, if he's gonna take, um, if you're gonna take the plague spitters instead, you would have to find eight more points somewhere in the list. Which again, there's places you could potentially. You know, you could potentially oh. drop a Poxwalker too. You could potentially drop a cult, you know, some cultists. Kind of rearrange some I mean, of those I, things. I see. They dropped the entropy cannons five points. Yeah. In that, okay, so that's why because he used because I'm like looking at the codex and like twenty to seventeen. Oh no, no it's fifteen it's, yeah. to seventeen now. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. No, they did change those. So I, I get why you're taking the entropy cannons, and I I kind of view them as a trap choice, um, just because you want the plague, you want the 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 plague burst crawler to either be setting in a corner somewhere just taking pop shots out of line of sight or you want it to be moving and firing and in both cases the plague the plague spitters are going to be better choices even though i really do like the entropy cannons and and like having that extra punch with them yeah and i don't think the i don't think the rot hail volley guns really a, a worthwhile upgrade either over the heavy slugger not for the points not no not for six more points for one fewer shot at 12 inches shorter range Mm-hmm. You know, for in exchange for one better strength than AP, but still, yeah. So I mean, so that's kind of what I would suggest. I would I would say drop the Chaos Lord and drop the the uh, Putrefier, drop in a, uh, a a Demon Prince, and and honestly, if he's already planning on just walking the Chaos Lord up, you don't even necessarily have to do the wings. True. Like it, it's like this will give you. You drop the pyologist putrefier who you're already not sure on, and you just have, you know, yeah, you just have like, okay, this chaos lord's walking. He's already walking faster than the chaos lord would have. He already hits harder, mm-hmm. and you're also not giving up a cat. You're actually adding a caster. So yeah, so instead of replacing typhus, you just have something that's just better all around. Yeah, exactly. And let's see, let's see. So the Demon Prince still gives you the hit roll, reroll hit rolls of one, whereas the Chaos Lord has exactly the same ability, only he also... Yep. Yeah, so it's like you're getting the exact same ability for something that is also just 
better. I mean, the only downside is the Chaos Lord has a 4-up invuln versus the 5-up on the Prince, but the Chaos Lord also doesn't even have the 5 toughness that like most of the other stuff in this army has. Right. Yeah, the stuff that got ported over from... And we talked about this when we did our review. The stuff that got ported over from the previous version of like Death Guard, like from the Chaos Marine book, the Chaos Lord, the Sorcerer, the Hellbrute, some stuff like that, they really stick out in this book as not synergizing with the rest of the army very well. Right. And yeah, that that that's a, that's a problem that I just I really wish they would address because it'd be nice to be able to take a chaos like a Death Guard character, like non sorcerer character who mm-hmm. like as a as an HQ who is not in Terminator armor but also still has disgusting and resilient and it's an option they just don't have right now. Right. And they, no, they need that. And like, I, yeah. And like in general, like Hellbrute should have death guard. Hellbrute should have disgusting and resilient. And you know, it would make those get used more. It would hell defilers would be good if they had disgusting early resilient. In well, this. and I, I understand why you like know? they don't give like to the demon engines, but Hellbrutes like if they we're playing disgusting and resilient as though it's their Legion trait, Hellbrute mm-hmm. should have that. And then that would make, yeah, Death Guard Hellbrutes would be worthwhile. Yeah. Also, it would be nice if the, uh, don't, and, you know, I know he's got the uh, combi bolter and power fist on the Chaos Sword. Well, you're not going to need the power fist with the, the Hellforged sword that the thing has. And then figure in the FAQ that says it can also take a plague spewer because it, it's been yeah. eroded to have it with the change of the first bullet point to read. This model may either take a plague spewer or it may replace its Hellforged sword with a demonic axe or second set of malefic talons. So if it takes a plague spewer, it doesn't replace the sword, apparently. Yeah. And then a plague spewer, point-wise, is... It's 19 points, so you'd have to... It's kind of like trying to put wings on it. Mm-hmm. But like, if you wanted to still have a little bit of that, that shooting ability... Granted, it's only a 9-inch, and it is a heavy, so if he moves... He, well, now he's hitting on 3s instead of 2s. Except plague spears automatically hit their targets, so not a right. problem. So, yeah. so having a 9-inch, heavy D6, strength 5, AP minus 1, plague weapon, flamer, not bad. Well, and that's and like I said, that's kind of the reason why he wanted to take the uh, was talking about the second foul blight spawn, uh, you know, so he'd have another one of those type of weapons. Well, here you go, you've got that instead, and you've got it on a more mobile platform. Yeah, and so if he's still taking the arch contaminator warlord trait, then that you're going to reroll to wound with that plague spear also. Mm-hmm. So um, that I think that would give you that would be just a much better choice than the chaos lord. Just I. And whether you want to, like, having the Plague Spear there, it also gives you um, a re-rollable, like, a re-rollable weapon in Overwatch that auto-hits. So if somebody charges your Demon Prince, you can now melt their faces before they get to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if you're going to be pushing that thing forward, you're going to be up into people's, up into people's lines. So you, that, that's a good defensive tactic. Yeah. And the other, the other thing is, honestly... I think you could drop the Chaos Cultists for a couple yeah. of reasons. Once again, they don't add to the... Uh, they don't have Disgusting Resilient. They don't get any of the benefits from the chapter, which actually is consistent now because Cultists and other Legions don't gain the chapter ta- tactic anymore, the Legion trait. But he's talking about having like one unit of Cultists sitting in the... like bubble wrapping i guess both plague burst crawlers thing is you may not mm-hmm. have a place on the board where you want to put both plague burst crawlers together especially if you want to camp them on top of objectives and so it's like you're either gonna to have to pick one and leave the other open or do nothing with e- like don't do anything with either 
you're already at four troops choices. So having the fifth is not really of any benefit in this case, especially if the cultists aren't going to do anything. They're not tough enough to really hold an objective if somebody really wants to make a, a push to challenge you on it. So I would probably drop the cultists and either put the extra points into maxing out the second unit of play of Poxwalkers or just then have those points available to do upgrades for like, you know, like putting the plague mm-hmm. spewer on the demon Lord or on the demon prince. And putting the plague spitters on the on the plague burst crawlers. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, and I, ten, maybe giving people power fists and stuff like that. Or yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just like figure out like, I mean, it's only fifty seven points. So I mean, you're gonna lose thirty six of it if you max out the other pox walkers. But that still gives mm-hmm. you twenty one points to play around with, which, like you said, could be plague spitters on all three uh, all three plague burst crawlers, and then. Yeah, then figure out what you want to do from there. And if you needed to, peel up a point, a couple of models off of the Poxwalkers if you want to do the upgrade on the the Demon Prince. Yeah, I mean, I I think the way he's wanting to use the list, and that would pretty much cover it. Like, uh, I a second foul, foul blight spawns okay. I mean, it's a really good unit, but for seventy seven points, considering the other things you could be doing, this would be a I think it would be a better choice overall. So, since I'm doing, I'm looking at it in Battle Scribe here real quick. Getting a the Demon Prince with the Hellforged Sword and a Plague Spewer, uh, Plague Caster Typhus, leave the Plague Marine units exactly as they are. A 20 man unit of Poxwalkers and a 17 man unit of Poxwalkers, and then putting the Plague Spitters on all three of the burst cannons comes out to 1,997 points. Okay, and that's with dropping the Putrefire. That's with dropping dropping the Putrefire and dropping the Cultus. Okay. So that's probably what I would recommend because I think you're going to like the plague spitters on the, on the crawlers better. And the demon prince is going to function, do everything that the uh, chaos Lord was going to do, but better in every regard, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. So, and like I said, I I just don't see any value in keeping the cultists. They just don't, they don't Mm -hmm. bring anything to the table. All right. And if you have a, a letter you'd like us to read on the air or a list you'd like to get to us uh, or just some commentary on something we've said before, uh, there's three good ways to get to us. First is our email, and that's emailing us at our first name at Preferred Enemies. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at PreferredEnemies.com. Uh, second is to like us on Facebook. We are at Facebook.com slash Preferred Enemies. That's where we post everything we're working on, events coming up, reposting news from Games Workshop and adding commentary. People uh, can comment there. And, and so like us, send us a message there. Third is our Twitter account. We are at Twitter.com slash Preferred Enemy, singular. Uh, so we collect, uh, all our, we collect questions from all those sources. We put them into our hopper and we try to read about an hour's worth on each episode if we can. Um, if, uh, if we don't get to you on the next episode, just know that you are in the queue and we will get to you as soon as we can. Uh, also we have a Patreon. We are patreon.com slash preferred enemies and that helps us, uh, do things like make sure our equipment's upgraded, make sure that our, our people who are remote have good microphones to use so that sound quality is clear, uh, helps us get to various events as we are. Um, officially, both Kevin and I will be at LVO this year again. So January Woo-hoo. 2020, we will be at LVO. Also, um, other events that we are going to include uh, next week, or actually, no, two weeks. So it'll be a week from when this episode airs. Uh, Flying Monkey Con, I'll be there. Uh, Dennis and I will be at Show Me Showdown. 
Um, we're going to be at Iron Halo, uh, Renegade Open. I will be at Siege World in August playing in what they are hoping to be the world's largest apocalypse game. They're hoping to dethrone Warhammer World of all places because actually <laughs> they've had the title of largest apocalypse game and they're hoping that the last hurrah of old school apocalypse is going to be bigger than what Games Workshop themselves has put on. And, uh, I don't know if you've seen it on Facebook. Uh, Viet Nguyen, who had one of the finalist armies at our, uh, at the Midwest Conquest, just finished painting a entire Titan Maniple in at 40k scale that will be on display and in use at Siege World in the Apocalypse games. And it's absolutely beautiful. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be awesome. So yeah, that just that's just a, a snapshot into the kind of stuff that your uh, your support on Patreon helps us do. Uh, so we really appreciate all the help. Uh, and if you want to support us, it's just uh, it's basically an online tip jar. We don't put any of our episodes behind a paywall, so it's everything we have ever had is available to the public. This is just there if, if you want to throw us in a, uh, an extra buck or so a month and help us do the things that we can then bring to you on the show. So and enough people throw in a dollar it all adds up and so we have two new patrons all our new patrons get shout outs so matthew hurd and henry bryce are uh new to the patreon family so uh matthew and henry thank you very much for your support so we're going to take a break for sponsor identification and then i'm going to talk with both nathan martin and ben spears from the show me showdown and midmo maelstrom respectively about their upcoming events later this year and then after that we'll be on our main topic which is data sheet doctors tau empire edition see you in a bit miniatures we build them we paint them we love them that's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely and that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. And we're back, and I'm here with Nathan Martin from the Show Me Showdown. How are you doing, Nathan? Great. How are you, Rob? I'm doing great. So uh, the reason I've got Nathan here is uh, Show Me Showdown is coming up in July. And, uh, well, if you wanted to get in, um, Nathan's got some news for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, we actually are sold out. Um, we hit 72 players registered right now, which is awesome. It's uh, I, I'm super excited. We actually, this is our second year, and we only had 40 one players last year so we were a gt but we have uh gone almost double that this year so i'm i'm super excited about it so yeah yeah we got to uh dennis and i got to attend your first event uh last year and it was a lot of fun um even if i went nearly dead last and dennis forgot his <laughs> army but you guys were awesome to provide him one to play yeah yeah it was good um yeah you guys came and it, it was um for our first event i was really really happy um so kind of some history here. I 
I've been playing 40K since uh, around fourth edition. Um, I played in fifth, pl- went to lots of tournaments, you know, been to Adepticon, traveled around, uh, always played in tournaments, always loved playing um, competitively. I, I don't, I've never done great, <laughs> but I love playing. Um, and I just love the environment. I've always had a good time uh, meeting people, things like that. Um, I stopped playing in uh, toward the beginning of sixth. I didn't really care for the rule set uh, for sixth and seventh, so I moved over to to fantasy. And then, um, of course, Games Workshop, um, you know, blew up the fantasy world, and eighth edition came out. So I went back to eighth edition, and in 2017. Uh, like a few months after the edition came out, I went down to an event in Oklahoma with my friends and had a great time. And on literally on the drive back, it was like a three hour, three half hour drive back. And my friends and I were just like, you know, I think we should run a, our own GT. So that kind of got the ball rolling. And um, my wife is a school teacher uh, up here in the North Kansas City School District. Um, and she teaches... FBA, or well, she teaches business courses, uh, accounting, computer programming, things like that. Uh, but she is the FBLA sponsor um, for the school, and FBLA is Future Business Leaders of America. Um, she also works with the DECA program, which is um, for entrepreneurships for kids. Um, and they're always needing money to raise for, um, you know, the kids programs. Um, virtually every year they have students that go to nationals. And of course that costs money. Um, it's a public school. So, you know, really they're at the, at the, um, behest of patrons who either want to just donate money or the parents. Um, and so they do a lot of fundraisers throughout the year. So as we were kind of thinking of how to do this event, um, we thought, well, this, this would be perfect. Um, a, uh, another guy that we know, um, uh, Tim Royers, who runs the bug eater up in Omaha, I've been to his event before, and he does something very similar at a school where they raise money for, uh, some school programs. So we really just mirrored our event off of that. And, um, uh, that way, you know, all of the, uh, proceeds in excess of like prize support and things like that go toward directly toward the school. And so we raised a bunch of money last year and the event went off really well. I was, you know, I had a lot of positive feedback from obviously you guys and uh, from a lot of the players that attended. Having attended events over the many years, you kind of get a feel for what you like and what you don't like. And uh, that's really what we wanted to make this event about. But uh, the fact that we've almost been able to double our numbers for this year is great because you know, obviously that's more fundraising for the school programs, which is awesome. Um, but uh, also too, it, it you know helps us just continue to grow and uh, be a, a hope, hopefully, uh, you know, one of the premier events um, in the Midwest, much like uh, Midwest Conquest. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Uh, so, so yeah, what's changing up between year one and year two? Like, you know, year year one was a good event. You ran a very good event, and obviously, you've got the word out and people are coming back in droves and then some. So uh, what are you, is there anything you're changing between year one and year two? Yeah. So real quick, uh, as far as like the, some of the scoring is going to say, stay the same. So one thing I'll, I'll note is that it it is an ITC event. um, So we we're playing ITC missions. Um, I I personally like the ITC missions a lot. Um, I think that I know Midwest conquest, you guys ran on this year too. Mm -hmm. Um, They're, they're, they're pretty streamlined at this point. You know, one of the things that I really like is the camaraderie of the players. And I think ITC allows that because 
honestly, the rule set, while good, it's also very simple and it allows newer players to come. Um, and, you know, one of the things I know you guys have talked about and kind of one of the reasons I think not to put words in your mouth, but I think maybe one of the reasons you guys ran the front friendly this year was to give give newer players or players that weren't, you know, I'll call hyper competitive an outlet to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one thing, one of the things that I really love, I, I love competition and I love playing in competitive environments, but I also love the community. And so one of the things we do with the scoring is kind of help that we don't do a strict, just, you know, uh, most battle, you know, most battle points within the ITC wins you the event. We actually do a, a skewed scoring where 70% of your battle uh, goes into your uh, overall score. And then we do 15% is um, your sportsmanship and 15% is your painting. Um, so those combined scores give you the overall ranking for the event. We, so I, I really like that. Um, it, it allows, you know, players to come and, and um, you know, not only be friendly and shoot for a best sportsman, but also bring out their painting skills um, so they can kind of get a best overall score. And I know for you, Rob, unfortunately, you <laughs> lost out by having too good of a paint score last year from getting uh, our, our final place uh, at the event. So Yeah, curse me for actually putting in the hobby effort. <laughs> <laughs> so so to, to your original question, as far as what's changing, that is one thing I'm going to change this year. So we're actually, uh, we're still giving out a last place, the dead freaking last, as a lot of people call it, the DFL place award. Um, it is just going to be battle points this year. Um, I had that your feedback and some other folks too um, felt that was kind of more appropriate. Uh, so, but that, that's one minor thing that's changing. Um, we're still giving away uh, best overall. So that's going to be the best, you know, s- sports plus paint plus battle. Um, we are giving away the best general again, which is just battle points as well as uh, we're doing a best painted award, which is um, the judges vote on that. Uh, and then our best sportsman award as well. Um, one, the way we do that is everybody at the end of their round will grade their opponent uh, up or down. You know, was it a good game? Um, and did your game come to a natural conclusion? And uh, then at the end of the at the end of the tournament, we have all the players vote who their top three opponents uh, were, or their friendliest opponents, if you will. And then that's how uh, that person wins best sportsman. The, uh, we're adding three new awards this year, um, and they're uh, also along the same lines of the community. They're, they're Players' Choice Awards. I know a lot of events do best in faction, so like they'll award the best Imperium player and the best Chaos player. We, we're doing that. They're, they're Players' Choice for best Imperium, Players' Choice for best Xenos, and plus Players' Choice for best Chaos. But what we're doing is these three awards are actually going to be solely player-based. Um, there's going to be a score sheet uh, that each of the players will have throughout the weekend. And this is re- this is going to be non no, – the judges can't – are not going to intercede at all uh, other than if there are ties, which we'll use um, some tiebreakers to get. But basically you guys are going to vote – um, on your player's choice. And it can be whatever criteria you want. It can be because you had the most amazing game against this guy and or gal, and uh, you think, you know, this this guy should win best chaos. 
or it can be you walked around, you didn't even play the person, and you said, man, that guy's army looks amazing. Look at the detail he did. Look at his display board. I think that should, guy should get uh, my – he's going to get my vote for best Imperium. Uh, you know, it's really whatever criteria you, you want, and I think that – like, again, going back to my earlier point really leads into the community portion that I, one of the pieces that I love about, um, playing 40 K in a, in a uh, competitive environment. I think it, I, I'm hoping it goes over well. I'm going to have like a sort of a, this will, you're getting the exclusive, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I'll have an official, uh, notice on my Facebook page here, probably if not this week, then next week, um, for people that are following, um, the posts on Facebook. Uh, but I'm excited about it. I think, I think adding awards like that helps, you know, obviously helps more players have the ability to, to, to get something cool, but it also allows, you know, if, if you don't think that you're going to probably be us up for best, I don't know, uh, best general or, or, you know, get the most battle points or something like that, you can definitely, you can go for best sportsman. Uh, you can also go for best painted, or you can go for the player's choice. So there's really five awards that don't, um, solely rely on um, your battle points uh, to to win. So I'm excited about that. Well, that is that's a really cool idea. I like that. Um, just the idea of yeah, getting that community feedback, but like I said, just really open ended. And however you you decide your criteria for that is the best X army. Yeah, you know, because I've gone. I mean, how many events have you gone to where you know you you can have those awesome games? Or you can just be walking around looking at all the armies and think, man, I didn't play this guy, uh, but I love his theme. And and um, one of the things we did last year, and we'll, of course, I, I just sort of tongue-in-cheek do again this year, is when people are voting for their best sportsman award, you know, I make sure that people I, – I tell people, you know, go and talk to people, right? Like, it, you're, yeah, you're playing a, a competitive game, but like some, I've made some of the best friendships I've ever, I've ever made playing this game. So, you know, why not actually talk to the person and get to know them a little bit better uh, because you had such a good game and then you can vote for them for best sports or whatever, uh, um, or one of the other, the player's choice awards. So anyway, that, I just thought it was a cool element to try to, again, entice some of the newer players to come. We don't have a friendly event, um, but hopefully maybe people will be inclined to um, attend the event and just kind of see it from, from a, you know, a friendly perspective, if you will. Kind of a, a friendly com- slash competitive hybrid <laughs> feeling. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That I'll take that. Yep. I'm excited about it. Cool. And, and obviously you, with, having nearly doubled your player base, you've uh, had to expand into a new, into a new space, but you're still at the school, right? Yes. Yeah. We're still at the school. So anybody that's um, listening that played in our event last year, um, you'll remember that we were kind of in a, um, it's at the school. The school itself is enormous. It's a giant school, but we're in a, uh, like a black box theater, uh, which fit all 40 players pretty comfortably, I think. But uh, we already had we already knew that we were expanding this year. So we have actually moved all of the table space out to the cafeteria area, which is really, really large. It's actually just outside of the uh, of the small little theater area where it was last year. So there'll be even more space, which is awesome. Uh, more tables, um, you know, lots of room for you to. We, the, another thing that I always love about events is being ha- being able to have a place to really move around. Um, I've played at some events that where you are just really crammed in there and you've got to, you know, like 
walk all the way around from, you know, you've got to walk by five tables to get to your other side of the table and things like that. And that, that just, to me, doesn't make for a great player experience. So we always want to try to make sure that if we are expanding like we are this year, that we have enough room for you guys to put your armies down. You know, there'll be four chairs at every table. So you have a place for you to sit and a place for you, either your books or to put your feet up. There'll be an extra, an extra little spot next to the table mat too, where you can lay your army down um, things like that. So all those things uh, are good. I mean, you, you've played enough at, at tournaments, Rob, I'm sure that five games over weekend can be a grind. And I, I, as a player, I know that I like, since that's the case, being able to have a level of comfortableness, I'll call it comfortableness at an event is something that I always look for. So that's what we're trying to do for sure. Oh, no, I absolutely hear you. When we were coming up with, uh, various floor plan ideas for Midwest Conquest, you know, that was something that Kevin, Kevin actually put together our floor plans and that was something he took very strongly into account is making sure there's room at every table for, you know, like I said, four chairs. So there's room to sit down, set your stuff down, making sure we had plenty of spaces nearby for people to put their armies, put their army bags, display boards, what have you. And so, yeah, that, that, those little bits of player comfort that you can work in is just one of those things that will make an event that much better. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And you know, the other thing I wasn't able to send out a survey this year or last year, but I'm hoping to send out a survey much like you guys do for Midwest conquest. Cause the really, the best thing that an event organizer can do is get that feedback from players um, to say what worked and what didn't work. And so I, I take it, uh, I'm, I've got a level of pride this year that the event has kind of blown up so much, which is awesome. It makes me feel good that maybe we did something right last year and we're hopefully going to continue to do it right for this year. Um, so that's great. I'm happy about it. Um, but yeah, the listening to specific little nuances like, hey, it'd be nice to have some extra room, leg room or in, in a walking room around my table when I play a game is definitely something that uh, we, we want to um, uh, make happen. Well, yeah, and every, you know, just a, a word of the wise to any event organizer, or any tournament organizer, you, you never want to rest on your laurels and assume that you have created the perfect event. You should always, <laughs> you always be willing to, and not even just willing, it should always be a part of your event to do kind of a post-mortem afterwards and say like, okay, so what worked, what didn't, what, what was obviously good, what could we improve on? And then, yeah, try to get that player feedback and figure out, okay, so... Like what, you know, because it's easy to think from from sitting behind the judges table. Yeah, everything went smoothly and completely missed something that like the players noticed, like on every table or maybe like most of my tables were fine, but these were wrong or, or yeah, yeah. hey, more more time for lunch would be good. You know, just think little things like that. Yeah, be yep. huge. Yeah, yeah. And what, um, so like uh, speaking of that, one of the other things that we're going to change up this we changed up this year last year. Um, so the school itself is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so there's not a lot of, you know, if, you, if you're going to drive to get food and things like that, you're, you're driving a little bit. It's not that far, I guess. But um, last year we had uh, we left an hour and a half um, for lunch would just get to give people a little bit extra time. But on top of that, we, you know, the school, we actually are selling food for any of the players that want to. And of course that just raises more money for the, for the, uh, school organizations. And one thing we noticed was that that hour and a half really just kind of drug by a lot of, a lot of the players chose to stay and eat rather than drive somewhere, um, which is great. But it also meant that 
it was the time in between those rounds was a lot longer. So we've shortened that up um, a little bit this year just to uh, kind of keep the keep the ball rolling. Another change that we're doing this year um, is that all of the tables um, will have chess clocks. I I I actually personally love using the chess clock. Um, as I play Gene Steeler Cult is my kind of army that I've been working on for this year, um, and it's got a lot of models, 130 model. It's actually I've reduced it a little bit um, for the next event I'm going to be playing in, but um, the it's got a ton of models, and so I'm I like to keep myself in check uh, <laughs> with that. So. Um, the, the chess clock is a great tool for that. But um, I also think from a competitive uh, perspective, I like the chess clock because in a lot of ways it doesn't it, – well, I guess it removes some of the, the – what I'll call the feel-bad moments where, you know, okay, you go up and maybe you're playing an elite army um, – like custodes or or um, uh, some sort of space marine or something like that, where you don't have a lot of models or knights, let's say, and so your turns are relatively fast. But then you get paired up against the um, me, the gene stealer cult player, and I'm taking a lot of time to move my models around. And I'm not, you know, I'm not purposely slow playing. I'm just, it's just taking me longer to do my my job to get the stuff that I want to do. So. The chess clock really removes that because you guys will each have an hour and 30 minutes to, to use on your on your on your chess clock. The rounds are three hours. And really, that just allows you to do what you need to do. And if your opponent, you know, they can use their time however they want. And the great thing is now with the ITC, they have introduced chess clock rules, which we will be using at the event um, for, uh, f- you know, for the chess clock. So that way there's no ambiguity. There's no need to kind of. You know, well, what happens in this case or what happens in that case? It, it's posted on the website, uh, on my website, and uh, but that that'll be another change that I'm I'm excited about as well. Yeah, I'm still. Whereas I I'm not personally a fan of chess clocks just because, I, and I've said this on the show before that I I have my concerns about how you know, if it would spill into casual play, but so far it seems that it stayed pretty much within the competitive realm. So I've kind of come around to the, the overall utility of them for competitive play. So I'll, I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of go with it and, uh, remind myself how to use them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, I think, sorry, I was going to say, no, I was just going to say, I I mean, I, I definitely hear you. I mean, I play all, types of uh 40k games my my friend and i are in the middle of a uh, urban conquest campaign um that we've been playing we, we started with planet strike a while back and then we moved it's the same we're using the same armies but then we've we've re, we've you know migrated the story that we're playing over to urban conquest um and the reason i'm saying that bring that up is just because the, there's a place for those types of games and those types of games obviously we would never put us, ourselves on a chess clock um because you know, there's really no reason for it. You're the difference between a what I'd say, what I call a friendly game versus a competitive game is just that you're. I think your your goals tend to be a little different. Um, I mean, I know I was originally signed up to play in the in the Midwest Conquest friendly game, um, and I ended up playing in the in the competitive because my friend wanted to play my um, Space Marine Army. Um, he ended up not playing it <laughs> on the sidebar, but um, you know, I, I yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't ever see a chess clock being needed in a friendly game or a casual game, just because 
it, it kind of in a lot of ways defeats the I don't know the purpose or the goal of that friendly game because you're you're playing either to a narrative or to a um, a storyline or, or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it just I always had this concern from from past in gaming environments I've been in where anything that happens competitively can bleed over into casual play. But so far, I think the the 40k community, I'll, I'll be honest, has kind of has pleasantly surprised me by by like in, enthusiastically supporting chess clocks, but really only in competitive play. So I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that'll be that'll be um, we have that this year, um, uh, and uh, th- those are the I'd say that those are the major changes that were. Um, oh, I guess actually one more thing. Um, I'll give a shout out to uh, Jason Horn um, of Iron Halo. He is going to be streaming at um, the Show Me Showdown. Um, so if anybody watches the Iron Halo stream, Jason Horn does a great job. Um, he's kind of done a, a wonderful. I know he helped you guys at Midwest Conquest, which is great. He, I, I kind of consider him a kind of a staple in our Midwest community, which is uh, good. And he's uh, do, does a great job with the stream. Um, so I'm super, super excited about that. It'll be our, our top table will be live all weekend. So for any of the listeners that, um, are interested in the, um, the show me showdown, but can't attend, um, obviously cause we are sold out. Um, uh, you can watch the, the top table, watch, uh, Rob, uh, play his ginormous, uh, town are, uh, <laughs> at the top table <laughs> all weekend. So uh, yeah, we'll see if that happens. <laughs> if it's like hopefully it's not like last year where i wouldn't be sniffing anywhere near the top table but <laughs> but hey you know turnabout is fair play if i if i go nearly dead last you know you went nearly dead last at, at our event i think we're yep. even now yeah oh yeah yeah no i exactly we've we've both um i i got your event and you got my event uh so so we we're we we take this now as a clean slate there you so, go so you 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 know last year doesn't mean anything. You can uh, take uh, uh, first place at my event this year, and maybe I'll take first place at uh, Midwest Conquest next year. <laughs> I doubt. Uh, it. <laughs> hey, you never know what's going to happen. That's true. That's true. But yeah. but no. Speaking of Jason, it's it's you, mentioning that he's kind of become a staple of the Midwest community. Uh, I have to absolutely agree, and it's been really cool. You know, Dennis and I went to the very first Iron Halo, you know, a few years ago. And watching him go from a guy who's like I, kind of in the same position you were at, where it's like I could put on a 40k tournament, yeah, you know I could do a GT, and watching him go from that guy who started a GT in a restaurant because that was like the only space they could get available, and yeah. now traveling to multiple events and being a streamer and like serving as a judge at LVO and stuff like that, yeah. it's, like, it's been really awesome to see him like grow into and embrace that role so it's awesome to hear that he's going to be bringing his streaming talents to uh to show me showdown yeah yeah i'm excited about it we're also uh part of just like midwest conquest was we're part of the lord marshall series which is a really cool kind of midwest i don't know lvo uh lvo of the midwest i guess i'd say or uh itc champs of the midwest where all of the players will earn uh lord marshall rankings um, and that that Lord Marshall, of course, is is going to be crowned at the Iron Halo this year. Um, so uh, now that we're a major status, the players um, will all earn major points, um, major ITC points toward Lord Marshall as well. So that'll be cool. 
Yeah, yeah. So then the winner of the Lord Marshall series, which uh, you can follow on the Iron Halo website, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, gets a ticket to LVO. So yes. they'll be able to attend this year's ITC Champs for free. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I'm, I, you know, honestly, uh, just real quick to talk about that, like the 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 Lord Marshall, I think is a really really cool thing that we've done. Um, I mean, I say we, I I not I haven't done anything. It's Jason Horn, you know, he he rallied the troops, uh, all of us tos, uh, you included, um, to to kind of you know, get the hype train going for the Lord Marshall. And I, it's been really, really cool. Um, you know, they, they have, they have their own rankings, uh, through BCP. Um, you know, people can, you can go out there. Um, you can, if any of your listeners want to check out myself or Rob, um, we're both out there on the Lord Marshall. You might have to scroll down a little bit, but you'll find Yeah, quite a bit, (laughs) (laughs) but Hey, we're out there, man. We're making it, we're making our, uh, Lord Marshall, uh, flags, uh, fly. So that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, it's, it's been cool to be, be part of that circuit. Although I will admit I had to remind, because when, uh, he, he was putting out like the states and those west because the Lord's Marshall Lord Marshall started off a, like a year or two ago as like yeah. best of Oklahoma and yep. he then and then a bunch of the people from like the the Flying Monkey Wichita group came down and so he's like yep. well let's expand it into Kansas and then um, yeah and then we'll add in like Show Me Showdown in Midwest so which states is it well it's like Oklahoma and Kansas I'm like yeah you, no. you do realize that we're in Missouri but Kansas yeah, City Missouri. is a misnomer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But, but, but we got anybody, we got Missourian, so yeah. You talk to anybody outside of Kansas City though, and they they hear the word Kansas and they're like, and "Well, you're like, Kansas, yeah. right?" Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, no, not well. Not. I I I can't blame him. He lives in Oklahoma, and what's the capital? Oklahoma City. So yeah, natural, <laughs> it's a natural conclusion to make. Sure, 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 sure. Exactly. I'm excited. Uh, kind of keep banging the drum, but uh, it's going to be a great event this year. I think. Oh, it sounds like it. So even though you are sold out, there is a wait list. So where can somebody go to find out both, you know, like sign up for the wait list as well as like find all the information about the event coming up so they know like all the rules and all the prizes and such? Yep. The uh, two ways. Um, first is our website. It's at www.showmeshowdowngt.com. All, you know, showmeshowdowngt.com. Uh, and a word of the wise Show me showdown. There is a show me showdown.com. It's like a gambling website. So if you see that, if you type that into your search bar, uh, that's not my event. Uh, just add a GT for grand tournament at the end of that show me showdown GT.com. And that's where you'll be. Um, but all the information as far as um, the mission pack um, information about the event is all there. Um, you can see what players are attending. Um, there's also pictures on there uh, from the 2018 event. So you can see uh, pictures from last year's event to kind of see what it looked like. And then uh, the other easiest way is to look us up on Facebook um, at Show Me Showdown GT. And that's where I'm posting all of the updates. Um, I have been announcing sponsorships um, pretty much every Friday. I've still got more to announce. Um, we've had a ton of great sponsors um, this year. And then if you need any specific information, you can always email uh, TO, that stands for Tournament, or- Tournament Organizer, TO at showmeshowdowngt.com. Um, that'll come directly to me and uh, my team, and we can answer any questions. But one thing I will say, too, you'll see this on the website. Um, we are encouraging 
folks to just come out and take a look. There's no, we're not a convention. So people can just come out to the school. The address is there. Um, we've had last year, people took us up on that. We had some, um, a couple different families kind of come out just to see what was up and see the Warhammer 40 K. If you've never been to uh, a tournament, it's a spectacle. Like it's, it's pretty cool. Even if, even if you've been to like, you know, cons at conventions and, and things like that, which are a spectacle in, in and of themselves, Coming to a, a Warhammer uh, tournament is pretty cool because you just see a lot of, you know, you'll, you'll see the games, you'll see all the amazing armies, things like that. So it's a really just cool, neat thing to, to see and, and experience. So I encourage if you're interested uh, and you're in the area the weekend of uh, July 20th and 21st, come on out. Say hi. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll be there. I know, obviously, Jason will be there. You'll be there, Nathan, uh, and there's a lot of people. So, like, a lot of players coming around from all over the Midwest are going to be there. There's going to be a ton of neat armies on a ton of cool tables playing a ton of cool games. Yeah. So, yeah, July 20th and 21st in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, and if you, you – even if they're sold out, get it, get yourself on the waiting list. Go ahead and show up. And, hey, you never know. Might you know, You'll get to see some cool games if nothing else. That's right. Yeah. Just so, uh, like, like you said, there is a waiting list right now, so you can feel free to, um, email me at TO, uh, at showmeshowdowngt.com or hit me up on Facebook and I'll get you on the wait list. You know, there's always a chance that, you know, things happen. The, the event is six weeks away. So like ever, as we all know, we've all got families and lives and jobs and things, life happens. So people can drop. So I encourage you, if you're, if you want to play, hit me up, I'll get you on the wait list and I'll let you know if someone does drop. So That'll be good. Well, once again, Nathan, thanks for uh, joining us on the show. And uh, I know Dennis and I are both excited to uh, be showing up in about a month. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Rob. Um, I love the podcast and uh, you guys always do a great job. So appreciate the time. Thank you very much. So, uh, so yeah, show me showdown GT. That GT is very important. Show me showdown GT.com for all the details or show me showdown GT on Facebook July 20th and 21st. And we're back, and I'm here with Ben Spears from the Midmo Maelstrom. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing good, man. So, uh, Midmo Maelstrom, uh, if if any of our listeners don't know, I, I attended last year, which was your first year, correct? Correct. And so, you are coming back for year two. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the event? So, the Midmo Maelstrom is a 2,000-point ITC, and a, now is a part of the the iron or the uh, pardon me the iron halo setup for the circuit and it's a gt level event um it's held in ashland missouri which is pretty much right in the middle of missouri so it's it's two hours from st louis two hours from kansas city it's a uh it's a pretty awesome event we've got uh beautifully painted tables uh we actually have a great concession stand on site and have um we actually have a professional chef that comes in and actually does our concession stands for us. So he, uh, we last year we had uh, some really great southern style pulled pork. This year we're going to have uh, one day is going to be a really awesome taco bar, and the next day we'll be we're actually going to do pulled pork again because people really loved it. No, uh, yeah. the pulled pork was really good. <laughs> and uh, we actually have a lot of prize support for our first year. We actually, uh, I think we gave away. It was it was a little over 
is a little over three grand worth of prize support. Um, we actually pay out for a bunch of different stuff. Um, and we have, uh, some actual, some, some plaques that get made that are completely 40 K related. So it's not just like, um, you know, like a little, like the cheap ones you buy from a, you know, from like a, a, a tournament shop or something. It's actually, um, they're actually 3d printed by me. We, we gave out prize support and plaques to, to about eight different placings. Um, first place actually receives $300 cash prize. Plus they also receive a, uh, last year we did a, a 3d printed chain sword. We haven't really revealed what this year's first place, uh, trophy is. Uh, I'm kind of keeping that under wraps cause I'm, I'm really excited about it, but it's also, uh, just as big. It's going to be, it's, it's a, it's another, another 40 K related first place prize, but I'm, I'm kind of kind of keep them on the close to my chest until we start kind of leaking little photos for it. But, uh, um, and then we give out a bunch of prize support for, you know, second and third place, but also like uh, best in faction and, uh, best sportsmanship, best painted. Uh, we actually gave out a lot of prize support also for the guy that came in last place, <laughs> which uh, not a lot of people do, but we always like to do, you know, you always want to do something for, you know, it's just kind of a thank you for, hey, you came out, you put in like all all five or all six games, however many rounds you have, and you stuck with it. You should get something as a as a thank you. Yeah, yeah. And we, we kind of feel the same way. It's also why we also, we give a swag bag to every individual that walks in through the door. Um, we don't charge extra for that swag bag. Um, I think last year we had about, uh, it was about... Uh, it's about forty dollars worth of stuff. Um, this year, I'm hoping, uh, barring my uh, my my partner in crime, my girlfriend from murdering me, um, <laughs> she's been helping me a lot. With we actually have been doing more and more with uh, creating some some three D printing stuff, and also uh, well, she's gotten really big into vinyl, so she's really doing all sorts of vinyl work with custom stuff. So we've got. Uh, um, really cool koozies that we've been giving away at some other tournaments. We're also going to have those. We'll have a, a bunch of other stuff that we're kind of, kind of keeping, kind of keeping under wraps right now. Cause uh, she's trying to see how much of it she really wants to make <laughs> for, you know, 70 plus people. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we have, we have a lot of space. It's a good, it was a pretty good venue and we're, we're sticking with it. Um, as I'm being dumb here and not saying that it's a two day event, uh, so it's two days, it's November 2nd and 3rd. So it's, uh, the only tournament that I've ever been to that you get an extra hour of sleep because it is over daylight savings time. Oh, nice. Uh, so yeah, you get that, get that extra hour with us in there, you know, but yeah, it's, we're really, we're really excited about it. Um, you know, we're really pushing forward to have even better stuff, uh, better tables, new tables that we're adding in. Um, so like I said, yeah, we're, we're really, really excited, really stoked about it. Yeah, now I remember when I went last year. Yeah, the the tables were definitely something you you took a lot of pride in, and I know you've you've put a lot of work into your uh, your level of terrain for the event. Yeah, I I, I travel around, and I have a bunch of guys that uh, you know we got guys that go to LVO, and um, uh, Sam Henley is is part of our team and a part of my uh, my forty k group, which is Fort Road Columbia. And, uh, Sam Henley is, has traveled a lot. A couple other guys have also, um, we go to flying monkey and, uh, siege world and a bunch of other local ones, but you know, we go to ATC and Adepticon and nobody likes going to an event, you know, where you're even on top table and you don't have any sort of train out there or it's, 
you know, it's, uh, um, you know, you're really, you're kind of looking at it and going like, man, this is, you know, styrofoam and, and paper cups that have been laid out on the table with a cloth drop draped over top of it. You know, so we, we really wanted to have good terrain and, and not just, not just functional, but also it looks good. Um, we do have a lot of guys though that are very particular about the fun, about the functionality, you know, actually having, you know, ruins on it and hills and forests or craters or whatever and, and stuff to make it, you know, each table a little bit different, but also, you know, not going, cause I hate it going to a tournament when somebody says, you know, oh man, um, the tournament just, you know, or the, uh, the, the terrain on this one table, I just, I lost because of the terrain. No one likes hearing that. No. So we, we, we really pride ourselves on the tables. Uh, um, we've got, um, Brian, I have to give a shout out to a guy, Brian Allen, who is my best friend. He, uh, he is a phenomenal painter. Um, and he takes so much pride and so much time into some of these tables, um, that, you know, he, he really puts his heart and soul into it. And, and some of our, uh, some of the tables that we have, uh, that ice table, which I, I, uh, sent to you guys, he actually did that one. That was a, a brainchild of him. Uh, that was actually him going, let me just try this out. And so he came up with this really great ice table that was, that's, really phenomenally done and it looks really great. And, uh, he's been working on a couple others that are, uh, get some, some very mechanicum, you know, all sorts of crazy tanks and, and, uh, all sorts of stuff that we're really excited about. And, uh, and some train that we're actually making in house. Uh, we've got a laser that we're also designing and building a few new pieces of terrain. So oh, very cool. Yeah, we, yeah, and thank you very much for the for the use of that train. We had that on table one, which, by the way, Sam spent most of Midwest Conquest at. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was it was. Uh, I wasn't able to really. I wasn't able to go. Um, I was sitting there like getting bits and pieces from everybody, and you know, we have a big Discord chat. And we're all like, "We're you know, how, how's Sam doing? Or or how's this person doing? You know, we had, we had Ryan and." Uh, a couple other guys, Scott and, uh, going there and, and we're like, Oh man, he's on, you know, like he's on this table. And, and I kept on watching it and I was like, I was like, man, I wonder which table is mine. And everybody finally, they get back to me on they were like, yeah, it was on, uh, it was on the table. You let them borrow. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Was, and we've, we even had somebody come up to us and like, Hey, you know, it's not fair. Sam's got home field advantage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but and that's and that actually that table is our, is a good representation of what we're striving for. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it looks really good. Um, you know, it does have in our usual configuration. We've got the two forests. We've got a, an ITC, uh, enclosed ruin, which has the, you know, you can get in and out of it. It's two story. And then we've got two L shaped ruins and then we've got some line of sight blocking Hills. And, uh, that's really, and they're good size. I mean, you can, you could hide a ride on behind some of it, but it's not so overly big. You can't move bigger stuff around like knights. Mm-hmm. So we, we try and have that. And that's what we try and strive for more or anything else is that you've got some terrain, but you've, you don't have that planet bowling ball, which is what we oh, yeah. refer to it as, um, you know, but we're not, we're not putting out there, you know, like, a I, 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 as an experience and some of the play, some of the playing that I've done, I I've literally been on a table where it's, you know, like polystyrene, you know, from, you know, uh, um, packing material from, you know, Ikea where they've laid it down. And so you've got like a, 
a four inch wall that runs halfway along the table and you're like, Oh man, I can't see anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, we don't want to have that on a table, but we've, we've got a lot of variation. So, you know, lots of, lots of stuff in there to make them different. Um, I've actually been putting bits and pieces right now together with, uh, building a jungle table and, uh, trying to make it look very, you know, Eldar, um, crone world is not what I'm looking for, but, uh, the the Eldar fluff where they would where they had the kind of the pristine worlds. I'm trying oh, the, to go the maiden the, worlds. Maiden worlds, thank you. I was saying crone, and I'm like, it's the op- opposite of crone. Maiden, that's <laughs> what I was looking for. So, uh, so yeah, it, we're I'm working on that right now. Um, uh, we've we've got uh, we've actually got one of my favorite tables, which is actually uh, the cargo container uh, table. I'm actually going to add in some other stuff uh, to it. Uh, no one likes when I put the big giant. Uh, you know, uh, cut, a laser cut crane on it, but uh, trying to come up with a big centerpiece for that and uh, a few others. So it'll be good. No, it it should be. And I, and all the tables I played on uh, last year were phenomenal. So I'm excited to see what new stuff you roll out this year. Now, how many people did you have last year? So last year we, we had 40. We had uh, we had 40 players that, that signed up. Um, we had a couple drops at the end. Um, but we, uh, and then we had day one, we had a few drops. So we ended up at about at the end of it was 36. I've already had a lot of interest in this tournament. Uh, we actually had a lot last year, but a lot of guys were like, uh, dude, you needed to have told me a long time ago, but, uh, we've, we've been really putting the word out there. I mean, Adepticon, I was, I was, you know, talking to everybody I could under the sun, you know, really, really striving to get this thing a lot bigger. And uh, we're hoping this year we're we're really hoping to be closer to that you know sixty sixty five right in there. Uh, we have enough space and everything set up for seventy, and that's how many tickets we've got. Um, but we're uh, that's what we're shooting for is is in that sixty five to seventy range. So, and I I don't think you'll have any problem pulling that off because one thing I've noticed is that um, anytime that like a new event starts off whether it's iron halo uh i would just talk to nathan martin about uh show me showdown but uh anytime like one of those you know a new event comes up and you have a successful first year and you get a lot of you know a lot of good buzz about it second year tends to explode so i don't think you should have any problem hitting that and i'm i'm hoping you're i'm hoping that is the the, the way it's going to go uh, i've actually been talking to reese uh, from frontline and um talking about my tournament and, and the uh you know, he was describing me how uh, Bay Area Open went. And uh, he was like, you know, we started off, you know, we could barely get, you know, this amount of players. And then all of a sudden it just went boom. And he's like, and, you know, we sell out on like two days worth of tickets. So I'm hoping I'm hoping to get to that point. Um, I, I really uh, where where our venue is at and, and also um, just just where we are and located at. I mean, we're literally one of the most central points in the entire U.S. I'm hoping that we we get that point. We actually have some some pretty big names that are interested in coming out. I actually uh, got to talk to a couple of a couple of guys at uh, at Adepticon and a few others that are like, man, I may be flying out for this. So we're uh, we're excited. We're really excited about it. Well, I I hope you do have uh, have some of those big names come out. I hope you do get. It turned out, you know, because the more the merrier. And yeah. and whilst it, it can seem daunting to do tables for 70 people and everything, that's a good problem to have. Yeah, I mean, we're um, 
we've we've got we've got a you know a it's a it's a big thing i uh uh, getting the planning and everything else has has come has become a, a pr- pretty big portion of my you know like my daily event. Like okay, I gotta I gotta think about this today. Uh, even though it's in November, I've been um, my my girlfriend's been hounding at me about it and has been very helpful with it. She uh, she's been doing a lot of the like okay, well you know you're gonna need this many of this making the lists kind of deal and. Uh, I'm just sitting there like, well, I just want people to show up and, you know, have a good time. She's like, yeah, you might want to actually, you know, plan this out. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we've, we've, we're really, like I said, we're hoping for it. The, the tables, um, I'm actually really grateful for, uh, we actually have a, um, kind of a, it's not a rivalry, but they're, they're our, our good friends is, uh, is actually the gateway gamers out of St. Louis and they put on siege world mm-hmm. and, uh, they are very kind. My corner is their is one of their head guys. He is very kind enough to allow me to borrow a lot of uh, a lot of his mats and some of his terrain too. So kind of with a combination, it's the uh, you, with your powers combined, we are able to form a tournament. Uh, so we uh, we we put on a good tournament with a lot of with with help and and a lot of good people to come out and volunteer. Well, and that's one thing I've noticed about. And I don't know if it's specific to the Midwest. I mean, my experience that I don't, I haven't played in that many events outside of the Midwest, but it's really become a thing where all the various tournaments and groups around the Midwest will sponsor tables at each other's events and help provide materials. And it's just very much a whole regional TO collaborative effort. Well, and I think a lot of us too, um, you know, and I, I was, Actually, you just was talking about this the other day is that with the Midwest, you know, it's it's kind of a weird deal with the Midwest. You can drive almost to, you know, depending upon where you're at, you can get to a tournament for almost every weekend uh, at pretty good size ones. Mm-hmm. And we're not that far from each other. So, you know, it's a six hour drive or five hour drive to someplace or some in my case, it's it's a two hour drive. Either way, I'm going to Kansas City or I'm going to St. Louis and I can hit a bunch of different groups and a bunch of different tournaments. And we're so close to each other that we, you know, we have to somewhat rely on each other. And also, you know, it's kind of a, well, they're just down the road kind of deal. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like getting along. I, I think the, I think it, it really strengthens our community here in the Midwest is being able to have, you know, flying monkey show me showdown, um, you know, minimum Maelstrom, siege world, you know, all these tournaments are in this, you know, in a fairly decent sized area we all really have to play along in this sandbox and uh, I think we do a great job with it. Yeah. And it, and it's really been cool to see all the events pop up because when I first started doing 40 K and, and traveled to my first events, there was one event in Kansas city that popped up a couple of times and then ended. And then there was usually a tournament out at Daikon in St. Louis mm-hmm. and, yep. and that, and that was it. And yeah. then the next event we could go to was like we had to drive up to Minnesota for uh, yeah for Renegade Open and then Bug Eater started and then Iron Halo started we did Midwest Conquest and now there's just events like you said everywhere and you can uh, you know anywhere from a two to six hour drive generally will get you somewhere where there's not just an event, but a really good event with a good turnout and well run. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's a great, it, it's a great place and time to be. And while we're not as 
close to each other as, let's say, some of the events on the West Coast are. Where mm-hmm. I think being in the Midwest, we're used to having to drive for a while to get somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I, I think you're 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 right there, and I think uh, you know one thing that I think is that helps strengthen up also is um, you know the the Lord Marshall circuit. I think is that's actually brought a lot of us together. Mm-hmm. You know, not, you know, like I've been friends with you on Facebook since uh, uh, since you came to Midmo Maelstrom, but now with the uh, with the Lord Marshall circuit um, having that. Uh, is actually made it where we actually, you know, talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or at least, or at least, you know, we send memes to each other of some sort. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's it is a uh, it's an interesting thing in that you know the the Midwest the Midwest uh, meta and the and just the all the tournaments and everything else that have been just strengthening in the last I would say the last three to four years. I mean, they're exploding. Oh, absolutely, and and huge props to Jason Horn. Uh, listeners are going to get tired because I talked about talked about him a lot with uh, Nathan Martin, but yeah, uh, huge props to Jason for getting the the Lord Marshall circuit going originally in Oklahoma, and now it's the it's our it's a mini. I think the way uh, Nathan described it was like a mini uh, ITC for the Midwest. Yeah, it it, it is a it's a good it's a good solid way to, to, you know, have a, have something else that is not, you know, like, uh, if you don't go to LVO, you know, you're not really part of anything. This is actually really nice because now you can feel a part of a, you can, you can show your progress in a, you know, in a more regional specific sort of deal. And it's not, you know, trying to go off the NCAA bracket or something. So you can, you can actually, you can actually see really where you are, you know, in relation to, you know, a lot of the, the other tournaments around you and the other people around you, people that you see and, and interact with on a fairly regular basis. I mean, some of these guys I see at tournaments more than I see, you know, as people in my family. <laughs> family <laughs> and stuff. Well, and that that's one of the, the great things about this hobby is I've made fantastic friends just by being able to travel to different events and meet people and play with people. And yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the the aspects of the hobby that I don't feel can be stated strongly enough. I mean, there's there's some guys that uh, you know, uh, especially uh, you know your local community, but even you know further that you know you now all of a sudden you start like you, know, you talk to them you know on the regular and and seeing them and interacting with them and it's it it's great. It is really great, and, that, and it's also but one probably one of the best things about this hobby is is just making those social interactions. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, are tickets available for Midmo Maelstrom yet? Yes, they are. Um, you can purchase them straight from Best Coast Parents. Um, they are actually on sale right now with a pre-registration price of $45 until September 1st. And then after that, our ticket price actually bumps up to 50 bucks. You know, I think we've only got a handful right now that have, that have been sold, but uh, it's kind of one of those... It just starts building up the closer and closer we get. So we we tell people all the time we're like, man, buy tickets now. But like I said, I'm 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 very excited for this. I, I really want to see this grow and and uh, you know it's it's really been crazy coming from you know everybody was like, man, we should hold a tournament. To Ben, you should run a tournament. And now it's to the point of it's like, oh man, I got to do all this stuff. So <laughs> it, it, I really it, want to succeed. <laughs> Yeah, it it is can feel like a major undertaking, and I, I was talking with Nathan again, and just like there's those moments of panic where you're like, is this actually going to come together? Is this actually going to come together? And then it comes together, and it's so amazing. Yeah, and it's very, it's just this awesome feeling to be part of that. 
yeah, it, it, it is really great. I mean, I, um, I, I actually have, uh, a lot of pictures that I took at, at, uh, at last year's. And, um, it was really funny for me because I was, I was sitting there, you know, the couple of days before, you know, I get, I get really nervous before a lot of tournaments that I put on. Uh, I put on one a month in our local RTTs and I get so nervous cause I'm like, okay, I gotta have, I gotta have this, I gotta have this and all this other stuff. And, and, uh, it was really funny last year's, uh, for the Midmo Maelstrom, I was sitting there kind of having that whole freak out a couple of days ahead of time. And then I realized I was like, Oh, we actually, we got this, you know, like we're going to, we got this good, you know? <laughs> so we, it was a, it was a great deal that, uh, I didn't feel like I was kind of freaking out still over that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> but now you get to freak out about it all over again as you get closer and closer to year two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, I feel a little better about it already because, um, I've, I've actually had some great conversation with people that, uh, like I said, I've, I've got, I've got some people that have been really, really interested in the tournament and, uh, they were, uh, they had come out or they had been expressed an interest last year. And so there's some guys that I was really hoping, I was really hoping to have a lot more people that were from, you know, further and further out. So not just, you know, not just our local area, you know, our guys at a, you know, just outlying States. I've got guys now that are talking Ohio or, uh, you know, or, or looking at like, uh, you know, I'm, you know, coming out of Colorado, I might, I'd like to come out and fly out to it. And that, that actually makes me feel really good about, uh, you know, how, how my tournament is looking, you know, to, to say that I'm having people that are, you know, flying out there from, you know, a couple states away, or, you know, I've got one guy that's a, a good buddy of mine, uh, out of England. That's like, man, I'm kind of thinking about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, was, that would probably be the award for furthest traveled at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I might have to, I might have to make something up if I start seeing people that are talking about, yeah, we're traveling out of X, Y, and Z flying in. I'm like, I might have to make an award for that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you can still, right now you can buy tickets for 45. Awesome. So. Awesome. Oh, and I see Nathan has already signed up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well then we'll just have to make it a, a big old T.O. hoot nanny. I'll be, uh, I'll be sure to sign up as well. So yeah. And I encourage all, uh, all our listeners, if you're able to make it, whether you're in the Midwest or not from the sound of it, uh, it's, it, it, there's a lot of people looking to travel in. So, um, yeah, get your ticket sooner rather than later. It's going to be on November 2nd and 3rd, the Midmo Maelstrom. And, uh, that can all be found at www.midmomaelstrom.com. Yes. All right. Any, any last, uh, any last thoughts, Ben? Uh, you know, uh, one of the things uh, last year that uh, that we really were were kind of interested about is is uh, really showcasing the people that you know we uh, we put on just not just a, a good tournament but also a pretty fun and friendly one. We really are excited to see people and and get excited about it. We can also you can find us on Facebook. We've actually got a Midmo Maelstrom Facebook page, and we actually send out a bunch of a bunch of little snippets about it and things we're working on. And, uh, that's where a lot of getting to see what our new, uh, our next trophy is going to be, uh, is that's going to be the place to see it. Uh, we do post a lot on our website, but, uh, getting to see those daily updates on uh, what we're doing and what we're working on is pretty awesome. And you do put out some cool trophies. The chain sword last year was phenomenal. And I am very proud of the best sportsman plaque I have up in my prize <laughs> cabinet as well. Yeah. 
Well, Ben, thank you very much for joining us. And again, listeners, that's www.midmomaelstrom.com. Uh, tickets are available, $45, and then going up to 50 on September 1st. Uh, sooner the better, because these things tend to fill up fast. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you, man. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is Datasheet Doctors uh, Tau Empire Edition. So as a recap, if you've missed the first two Datasheet Doctor segments we do, uh, we put out a, a call to our listeners saying, what units do you wish would make the battlefield, but just don't because they're just missing something. There's either other units that do the thing better, or they're just like, we'd like to see it get fixed. What units need need a touch-up? And we're going to try to figure out if there's any ways to, to alter these units to make them viable again. And so, um, first off, for Tau Empire, we're actually not going to be looking at a Tau unit exactly, but it is one that has shown up in our lists in the past of worst units in 40k. Um, I don't know if I'd quite qualified as worst unit anymore, because the curve is really flattened down quite a bit, but it is still not a good one, and that is the Vespid Stingwings. Ah, Vespid. They've <laughs> you've never quite hit the mark. Um, so, quick rundown, because most of you have probably never seen a Vespid Stingwing on the table, for good reason. Uh, they are uh, three power level. Um, their point cost has not changed in, the co- in uh, chapter approved, so we can go straight out of Codex for this. At uh, 14 points apiece with a free gun, because they are the only unit that can take the gun, uh, they you get a unit of four. Uh, it can include up to four additional Vespid Stingwings or up to eight additional Vespid Stingwings, um, and you can replace one of them for free as a Vespid Strain Leader. Each model is equipped with a Neuron Blaster. A Neuron Blaster is an Assault 2 18-inch Strength 5 AP minus 2 one damage weapon, and uh, Vespid Stingwings are basically Strength 3, Tough 4, 14-inch uh, movement fly units, with literally fly units, they look like flies, with... Uh, Weapon skill, ballistic skill, four. Uh, leadership, five, unless they have a strain leader, then their leadership, eight, and four-up armor. Uh, they actually don't sound that bad. Well, and they can also, uh, they can deep strike also, which is mm-hmm. is pretty nice. You'll notice there's a couple things I didn't mention. They don't get greater good. Yep. They don't have greater good. They also, because they're considered alien auxiliaries, they don't have a sept trait. So, which means they'll never get a sept tactic, which means most stratagems won't really work on them terribly well either. Okay, all those are the negatives then, yes. Those are negatives, yes. 
Um, there is one way to get them the greater good ability, and that is if you are playing as the Dalith Sept, which <coughs> no one does, and if your Warlord ha- uses the Dalith Warlord trait, which no one does, um, it, while within your 12 inches of your Warlord, friendly Crute and Vespid units gain for greater good. So if the stars align and you've done things that you should never do, which is A, take Vespid, B, use the Dalith Sept, and C, I think I got that right, A, D, and C. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> I'm not fixing it in post. Uh, then uh, it's going to, uh, so A, 2, and C, uh, then uh, it, taking the Dalith Warlord trait, then theoretically, possibly Vespid Sting Wings will still be pretty crappy, but theoretically playable so like let's look at this like okay the gun not bad yeah that's the first thing i noticed is 18 inch strength five assault two yeah ap minus two that's really solid well that was the thing like back in i think their seventh edition codex nobody ran them then either but in an effort to make them more playable they made their gun really really good at killing marines yeah well their guns always like in the past they had you know ap when ap3 meant if you had a three up armor save you got no armor save they had an AP3 mm-hmm. gun, which means they, they were there to kill Marines. Yeah, like a unit of Vespid would come in and could theoretically just wipe a unit. Um, strength 5 still wounds Marines on 3s, just like it did back then. Um, AP minus 2 is not as good now. Uh, it's I mean, it, Marines are saving on 5s instead of not saving at all, so that's actually a bit of a, that's actually a bit of a nerf. The 14-inch movement is really nice. Yeah, uh, They are one of the fastest units in the Codex. And they have assault weapons, which means they can advance and still fire at a slight penalty. I, I mean, all those things, it looks like they should be good, but the lack of greater good, which is kind of like one of the defining Tau abilities, which also, because they don't have a Sept trait, you can't even protect them with Savior Protocols, because those only affect Sept infantry. Mm-hmm. Basically, they don't fit they it's it's like an army it i mean it they're auxiliaries but yeah it really feels like somebody dropped an a unit from another codex into this book and it's not a bad unit but you'd like but it doesn't gel with anything else in the book yeah one of my favorite concepts in the tower army is the alien auxiliaries <clears throat> so the vespids the crew you know the shapers the hounds stuff like that but they don't thematically fit with the army like the way the army has been the way the army's progressed over the last several iterations it's all about synerg- uh, synergizing ethereals and Kadri fireblades and overlapping fields of fire. And unfortunately, the auxiliaries just don't work with that. So it's it's interesting on as you know, it's going to be interesting to come up with ways to make them work because like the lazy answer is we'll just give them greater good. But that doesn't feel right either because it feels like they should probably have some, something that's different rather than because they're not Tau. They're, they are, you know, alien auxiliaries. They are meant to fill gaps in the Tau fighting force, and they don't really do that. They don't fit with what they currently do. Well, okay, so I'm going to throw one thing in as as a possibility. Well, actually, I'm going to throw first thing, like, right off. They need a point drop. 14 mm-hmm. points, like, you're talking 56 points for four models that don't 
again, don't gel well. For that same 56 points, I can get eight Fire Warriors that will put out more firepower and will probably win the numbers game like with the AP minus two and everything at much better range. I don't need to be able to move 14 inches to shoot you that mm-hmm. that well. Um, if Vespid cost maybe like drop a five point drop, maybe cost nine points a piece. Maybe go ahead and make them a unit of five and just have the strain leader as part of the unit. Yeah. Then, then for a, as a 45 point drop in, you actually get something, uh, you know, you, you get something that like compare that to pathfinders, which are going to be 40 points for a unit of five because they're five points base plus the three points for their marker light. So now it's like I can have a unit that can marker light or I can have a unit can shut that can really hustle and put the hurt on like power armor armies. I might also bump their gun up to an AP minus three to make Marines really fear them. Yeah. So I know you're talking about synergies. Um, this would, I don't know if is in Vespid fluff, but what if they were, their role would then be to fly over enemy units that were out in the open and put like sticky grenades on them so they couldn't move for a turn. Could be kind of like a, a not quite as aggressive version of what like swooping hawks do. Kind of, except that instead of doing mortal wounds, if it, if you, the, um, the squad fails a, maybe a toughness roll or a strength roll, one of the two, then they just, their movement is considered zero until the start of your next turn. Could be interesting. It's, we, we don't really have any equivalents of that in any of the armies, but right. being able to pin down an army so that you can. And that's very Tau. Yeah. Pinning down yeah. someone and then just focus firing them away. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like launching the Kalyan trap. It's like, okay, so they're in they're in the position we want them in. Let's pin them and down. And they've got 14 movements, so they sh- could hide somewhere and then just jump over whatever you need. Yeah. And, and well, and then you especially if you figure in in advance. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, that no that's definitely a, a possibility. Something else I was thinking of. So the strain leader, you'll notice the strain leader that you'll notice the strain leader in the picture has a funny helmet. As opposed to everyone else that just has bare heads. And that's, they kind of reflect that in his leadership eight over five. So that helmet is what allow, cause Vespid can't speak Tau and Tau don't exactly speak Vespid, but the strain leaders are given these helmets that would allow, basically allow communication so that the ethereals and the, uh, the commanders would get, could, communicate to the strain leaders and then the strain leaders and then turn around and pass that along to the Vespid. And fluff wise, there's also some possibility that it makes uh, strain leaders uh, susceptible to whatever ethereal pheromone magic there is that uh, makes ether- everyone obey ethereals unquestioningly. But I know we talked about like not necessarily giving them the greater good, but I kind of, once upon a time they had, you know, the, the strain leader having the helmet actually did stuff. And unfortunately I don't have my old codexes. You yeah. Know, look it up. If these, if a unit contains a strain leader, the unit has greater good. I'd be okay with that because then it's like, okay, well, if you lose that model, or you know, maybe that's the last model that's left. But like, if you lost that model to you know some sort of like random damage or something, or like there are some abilities out there that let you allocate the wounds to particular models. Like somebody could target the strain leader and take them out, but give the mm-hmm. unit a conditional greater good. Still, don't give them a set trait. Still, you still want to have them not feel like they're fully integrated in. But give them that ability to act as Tau, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, so they do need to have some ability to, like, function within the army. And it's, as, as Dennis said, either, you know, like, give them something that no other Tau arm unit can do and, and have them, 
be able to drop grenades or stasis or something like that, you know, and, and, and help kind of set the trap or have them just have them have an ability where they can pseudo function as part of the army. Yeah. They basically, they just need, because that, that, that is really the problem is like, they don't fit at all. They don't fit. I mean, they've got the mobility that a lot of Tau units would like to have. Um, They've Mm -hmm. got guns that are like, their shooting is very Tau-esque. They are Tau Empire units, so like they would benefit from marker lights. They've got enough synergy. It's sh- like they just need that, like that one or two, like you know, either providing something that the un- that the army just doesn't have. Yeah, like it, even if it was something as like, simple as like, yeah, when you fly over a unit, they like on you know roll a d six for every unit they fly over on a four up. That unit takes like subtracts six from their movement score for the for the net, you know, next movement phase. Mm-hmm. Like that would, mm-hmm. that would definitely, it would, or like subtract six from like all movement and, and charge rolls. Well, and that would be that super would useful for Tau. Yeah. Minus the charge. That'd be super useful for Tau because it would help. Yeah. It would help keep people off you for another turn or two. And, you know, as somebody who plays and, and has played against Tau, you want to be in, if you're playing against them, you want to be in melee as quickly as possible. So anything you can do to delay uh, for a turn like that's super useful yeah so i i think that would yeah that that would yeah giving them a delay tactic which again very few like some other armies have abilities that can do that somewhat but yeah having a dedicated unit that it's not so much offensive although they can definitely put out anti-infantry firepower but also just being there to pin a unit down yeah yeah that would be good and then like i said i i kind of like the idea of have giving them some way to get greater good that doesn't require a trifecta of bad choices to get there but sure although, sure although hopefully we can make the vespid less of a bad choice in of themselves but also i think fundamentally they need a point drop they're too expensive for what you get right now yeah absolutely yeah all right um the next unit i, I think we just keep the auxiliary thing going and we talk crute specifically uh crute carnivores which are the the other troop choice, well, it used to be the only other troop choice they had until they added breacher teams, and now no one bothers taking Kroot at all. Um, so, again, let's look at Kroot, because you may not have seen them on the table. Uh, so, the unit contains 10 Kroot. It contain, contain up to 10 additional Kroot. Each Kroot is armed with a Kroot rifle. Um, so, uh, these are available at uh Five points apiece. Crute rifles are free and are basically bolters. They're 24-inch rapid-fire one, strength four, no AP, one damage. Um, they can use the Crute rifle in melee as a plus one strength weapon, which, okay, that's nice. And they have a uh, seven-inch... They basically have a seven-inch vanguard move. Like, the start of the game, they can move up to seven inches, but they can't move within nine inches of any enemy models. Otherwise, they have seven inches of movement normally, they're strength three, tough three, weapon skill three, which is rare for Tau, four at ballistic skill, but a, a leadership of six and a armor save of six. And unfortunately, yeah. there's no, the only way to improve the, uh, the morale is by taking a crude shaper, which is an elite character, which makes them use the shaper's leadership instead of their own, which means it goes up to a seven instead of a six. And he also allows them to re-roll wound rolls of one. But uh, as they stand on their own, Kroot used to be able to do things like outflank. They used to be able to hide in woods and get, like, better cover. And they used to be able to take sniper rounds. Um, They can't do any of those things anymore. 
they are really just a slightly, and I say slightly, like two points per model, but you have to take them as a minimum of 10. So they're actually a more expensive troop unit that does less than a Fire Warrior squad. Also, again, you'll notice I did not mention Greater Good because they don't get it. Mm-hmm. So the, the first thing I noticed is back in previous editions of them, they got bonuses to cover for being enforced. Yeah. Terrain doesn't really work that way now, mm-hmm. but maybe one thing would be bring back, they get a bonus to their armor save if they're in cover or in any terrain. Kind of like basically give them the equivalent of like camo cloaks or yeah. something like that. That would be good. Because that, would, that, that would, would be starting yeah. their survivability. They Giving them some... The Vanguard move just doesn't do it for me. Moving these guys up into position gets you no benefit. They're not any better at right. it. Right. Like, they used to be used as, like, bubble wrap, but even that doesn't work terribly well now. Well, if you want to use them as bubble wrap, there's there's two things that I would do to make them immediately better at, like, bubble wrapping and, like, as at least road bumps, uh, speed bumps. Give them two attacks, make their weapon AP minus one. Okay, yeah. So that they actually have some form of, like, melee, and then you'd see them as screens, if nothing else. If you change nothing else about them, you... Then it becomes, hey, it's a blob of 20 or two blobs of 20 of these guys to just kind of charge out in front, scout move up, and be a little bit of a speed bump for to allow another round of shooting for my, my guys behind them. And that kind of fits fluff. That kind of fits the way that, you know, because unlike Vespids, they haven't been as integrated into the army and the society, so they don't have, like, the mind control, strain leaders, things like that. So it's like they're kind of just chaff. So let's, let's run them that way. Let's do what, like... And especially in this army, even having something like AP minus one as a melee weapon or even something with just a bulk amount of attacks allows you to potentially fend off a little bit in melee mm-hmm. and not just have that be, you know, not not just have the melee, uh, you know, the melee phase be, be where you're sitting there just pulling models off the table as your opponent just rolls through you. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, having them a- as that that screen ability would like even against like a jump army, well now the jump army is going to have to jump over a blob of carnivores and maybe not have as good a positioning and then get pinned, kind of, again kind of get caught behind the wall of crew and now they just get shot up from both sides. Yep. Yeah, because a squad of twenty with rapid fire that's that's forty shots. That's going to hurt. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is going to hurt, and that that'll you know it it won't it won't be too bad. But yeah, they need something like if yeah, Vanguard the Vanguard move, the Stealthy Hunters move, yeah, if you're gonna use them as bubble wraps or screens, that's definitely a way to kind of get your positioning in. Like I said, otherwise having the ability to outflank, even if it was just a stratagem to outflank. Because mm-hmm. I don't believe they like crew wise trying to see if they're like, okay, so there's a crew hound stratagem and yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Like there's a there's a stratagem that lets Crute Hound like once a Crute Hound successfully charges an enemy unit, then you can reroll failed charge ro- rolls for any Crute units within twelve inches of the Crute Hound, which that's I mean, that's that's not bad if you but you would need the Crute to be better at assault, which is why, yeah, yeah. upgrading the melee weapon would go a long way towards that. Because now well, they're charging it just, better than Marines, technically. Even with them just having one attack, like that it still makes it like one attack you know one attack at an AP zero, yeah, it just isn't isn't useful at all. So, give them more, you know, give them more attacks and or a better melee weapon, and you would actually they'd have a place in this army because it's not a, they're not a great melee option, 
but it's what you have. But yeah, because like right now, there's nothing about them that makes them any better than they're they're actively worse than fire warriors. And there's yeah. they don't again they don't provide a role. There's no space for them. They don't integrate well. Yeah, that that's the kind of thing they would need to. I think I, con- I think giving them yeah the stealthy hunters and I would if I did that I I would probably do all of these updates all of these upgrades give them the slightly better combat weapon give them the the extra attack give them the camo cloaks give them the and keep the vanguard ability it's yeah. like they I and I wouldn't necessarily raise their point cost because they already they their minimum already costs more than a, ten fire warriors cost you seventy ten crew cost you fifty. I could maybe see if you added all that, maybe bump them up to a point each. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they need the cover to kind of cover their the fact that they have a six up armor. And yeah, if you're shooting at the crew, you're not shooting at anything. You know, it's like they're they're screening, in which case they're doing their job. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and in that case, with them being just meant to be screening units, the fact that the six up armor isn't a huge deal. It's like okay, fine. They're they're doing their job. Yeah. And they are a unit I would not give greater good to because I Crute always have more of a feel of like mercenary. So they're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to care that other the tower being shot at. So whereas like like I said with the Vespid you can kind of argue that they're getting kind of mind linked into the rest of the town network, but uh, yeah, the carnivores just kind of do their own thing. Yeah, that those would give all those changes would give the Crute more of their own feel you know so because yeah they they they're sorely lacking flavorful abilities that are also functional actually they're missing yeah. a lot of abilities general they just don't they don't feel like anything right now and that's the biggest problem all right from crute we're going to move on into the elite slot and we're going to look at crisis suits now crisis suits did get a noticeable point drop in uh chapter proof 2018 they got a not insignificant point drop. Uh, they used to be uh, base uh, forty, f- like forty-two points a model. They they're now twenty-seven points. So a fifteen-point drop per model does help them out. They're in a better space now than they were. Now that's that's per model. That doesn't include their war gear. They come equipped stock with a single burst cannon, which still gets them to fifty points a model. That's uh, thirty-five points a model with the burst cannon. Oh, sorry. They were at 50. They're now 35. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> no, no. I just talked about their points drop, and then I took it yeah. away from them because I'm a jerk. <laughs> okay. So, 35 points a model. So, uh, stock, and they're, they come as a, a minimum of three. So, you're talking 105 points for 12 burst cannon shots. And now, granted, that's nine wounds, tough five, three up armor, 12 burst cannon shots. Um, that's not great still. And you're not really going to see people running just a single burst cannon on them. They're going to usually double oh, no, double or potentially triple up weapons on them. The problem is, and again, they've dropped the point costs on a fair number of the weapons, but it still gets, uh, it can still get pretty expensive. So for example, uh, like common builds you'll see will be things like triple fusion blasters, which are, uh, 18 points a piece. So you're talking nearly doubling the cost of each model for three uh, melt gun shots, effectively. Which is still worth it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, still, it's, yeah, so you're talking like n- minimum nine coming from the unit. Other, cho- other popular choices are the uh, Psychic Ion Blaster, which is also 18 points a model. 
which that one's very popular because it does have a couple of firing modes, one of which is very safe, one of which will cause mortal wounds. I mean, the advantage for these is, have always been that they just have basically every weapon in the codex. Yeah. So you can take plasma to like wipe out elites. You've got burst cannons to take out light infantry. You've got fusion blasters to you know be able to take out vehicles. You can mix and match. You've got three slots per per suit. So you could take three different weapons. You could, you, you know, with the changes to shooting in 8th edition, you don't have to fire them all at the same unit. So you could drop a unit of crisis suits in and then, you know, fire one gun here, one gun here, one gun here. And, it, you know, it, it it allows a lot of flexibility for them, but it also means that they can become incredibly expensive. Yes. And because they sit in the same slot as the Riptide, they are quickly overshadowed by the Riptide. Right. Cause well, the, and the Ghost Keel. <laughs> well, yeah. But, I mean, you're, you are far more likely to see a triple Riptide list than you are to see a triple Crisis Suit unit list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, like, like, let's do a comparison. A Riptide, 185 points base, plus, let's see, the Heavy Burst Cannon is 35, and... Uh, then like the pair of smart missiles is going to be another 15. So it's like 235 points before you add any, like uh, before you add the two um, signature systems that you're going to have on it. But to get something similar out of a unit of um, crisis suits, they don't really have an equivalent to the burst cannon. I would, the heavy burst cannon, I would almost say that it would have to be something like, uh, like, you know, plasma or something, which, yeah, plasma would be the closest thing. So those are going to be, those are like eight points a piece. So you're talking like if you triple those out, 24 points a model. So that's going to be, uh, 72 plus the 27 per. So 72. I mean, you're going to be, che- I mean, it's going to come in cheaper than a riptide. But then you also have the issue of the Riptide, like as it takes damage, yes, the Riptide will will lose some ballistic skill, but it never loses number of shots. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Crisis Suit, the minute you lose one of your three Crisis Suits, you've lost a third of your damage output. And that's a problem. I mean, like, j- if you're just doing like a side-by-side comparison. Yeah. Like, what, so what is it about Crisis, like, why do we not see Crisis Suits? anymore well, i mean the the seem the single most obvious answer is jetpack movement yeah that was always their signature thing you could move them around you could jump shoot jump move in your movement phase fire your weapons and then move back behind cover and like be able to have a mobile weapons platform which is something that no other one could do that the riptide couldn't you know, couldn't jetpack move the you know the ghost keel couldn't do that well actually i mean the ghost keel could but um, you just it, – it differentiated them enough that they they operated completely uniquely almost to anything else in the game. And they took that away and like jetpack is still a rule, a keyword, but it doesn't do anything. Um, and the simplest, easiest fix to do would just be like, no, if, you have, if you're a jetpack unit rather than assault, roll a D6 and you move that far you know, or something like that. Like – and you could have the ability to jump, shoot, jump again. And I think immediately you'd see a lot more of them because right now Tower very static with fire warriors and tanks and you know things like the Riptide. Okay. 
I'll just put it out here. I don't think you want to put it on Jetpack unless you're going to revise the Riptide data sheet. Sure, yeah. Because the Riptide is also sure. Jetpack. Yeah, and I don't I think I want to see jump shoot jumping Riptides. No, that's fair. Like, you could probably take, like, because both the Ghost Keel and the Riptide also have monsters. So maybe you just say it's infantry or battles. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a couple of a special rule on the crisis suits. Yeah, but like also the self suits used to have that ability too, and I think that'd be useful for them. But yeah, I mean, even if you just made it something for the for the crisis suits, that would that would increase their usefulness a bunch. Well, and, and would, okay, so just so you know, Riptides were jetpack monstrous creatures in seventh. Oh, were they? So okay. they did they did still have it. So like, if you want, I mean, Riptides and Ghost Keels and things like that are still going to be good enough without that. So like, being able to giving the crisis suits kind of their own thing to be able to like, uh, cause I get it. Like GW is very conscious about economy of actions and things like that. As we've talked about before, they're taking away, you know, the Inari ability to, you know, charge out of sequence and do these extra movements and things like that. So I know you don't want to give it out to everybody. So maybe just give it to crisis suits and just say that like on your, um, Rather than charge, you roll a d6 and you move that far, and well, you're I, in the assault phase, and it doesn't have to, you know. Well, and to be fair, like right now, the Riptide can do it uh, if that's what you spend their Nova Reactor on. So they're basically trading a mortal wound for the ability to move two d6 mm-hmm. in your charge phase. I okay, yeah. so the Riptide can do it if they spend a mortal wound. Just give the Crisis Suits the ability to do it whenever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just if they can just do it every turn, and again, and give that to anything that is a crisis suit. So, crisis suit commanders, cold stars don't need it. They have like their trade off is they sure. get they get the big movement. You know, they can fly really fly, but yeah. anything that is like an XV eight crisis suit, give the, give that boost move. Yeah, and, and it's not it's not something that's like completely new to the game. Like this no. is something they have had every edition up until this current one. Mm-hmm. And it would just, I think you'd start seeing, you would start seeing a lot of different types of Tau lists. You'd see Tau lists that like, for lack of a better term, and I, and, and I played Gunline Tau for a long time, so I'm just as guilty as somebody else, but you'd actually would have like more tactical thinking. You wouldn't just have static Gunline. You'd have people having to move around the field and, you know, and think tactically about how model positioning and and when you jump around a corner to shoot things. And I think it just would make the game, it would make Tau armies a lot more fun to play. And I think it would make them a lot more fun to play against too. No, I agree. I agree. And you know, that goes back to uh, William's letter about uh, Tau being too good. And, and the fact that, yeah, he, he used to be able to do jump, shoot, jump tactics, and now he can't. Yeah. This would help bring that back and make it a mobility game again, or at least give you the option to do that. Yeah give you the option if you wanted to play that game you could do that or if you want to play static online you could do that like it just it, it would allow options that you don't see right now because because as you mentioned like yeah crisis suits are really good gun platforms but like they're not as good as you know they don't put out as much as riptides they're they're smaller they're bigger targets than stealth suits they have less fire output than broadside so it's like they're kind of in this weird middle zone without any defining features and other units that are just frankly better at what they do. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I, yeah, I completely agree. And that's and that and that's really like this is this is one of like the crux cases for like a data sheet doctor. Is like this unit is not bad. Like we've like talking about Vespid and Crute. Like they in this edition they're actively kind of bad. This is a unit that's not bad per se. It's just there's other things like 
it it's in this weird mushy middle spot where there are other units that occupy the same slot even that mm-hmm. do this do that role better because there's no clear defined role and part of the reason there's no defined role is it's kind of the tactical squad problem of it can do a lot of things but yep. it's but there are other units that do those individual things better well and and it's kind of funny that you mentioned them as as tactical squads because tactical squads i think are, are a pretty good comparison to this tax squads are like the iconic space marine unit that don't really have a defined role and you don't see a lot the freaking crisis suits are on the cover of the codex and have been in every edition and you usually see one or two because somebody will take a commander and that's it like it, this is this should be one of the defining units of this army and you just never see them played yeah and the extra mobility like I don't think there's not a problem with really the weapons choices. Their weapons choices are fine. Yeah. Um. There's not really a problem, and, and the points drops are good for them. The points drops have actually brought them to a reasonable cost. You know, as as we're saying, like they're cheaper than uh, they're cheaper than a Riptide. That they, they and yeah, their damage output isn't quite comparable. But how many units do you need that are just gonna they're gonna move up eight? They're going to put out some shots and then they're just going to stand there without the ability to tank as well. Because that's the other thing is the Riptide. I mean, so a unit of three crisis suits is tough five, three up armor and has nine wounds. A Riptide, which, yes, is more expensive, but has greater damage output, is tough seven, two up armor, five up invuln save, 14 wounds. It's like the equivalent of having... Yeah, five crisis suits that are all wearing iridium armor, which let's fi- like which you can only have one one suit per uh, per three wearing iridium armor, and that that's a fifteen point upgrade. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a bit of a problem. Oh, sorry, the iridium up battle suit got down. It's now only a ten point upgrade. It's a ten yeah. point upgrade. So still, but yeah. still, it's like okay, so. If we update, if we made every crisis suit cost ten points more to count as the two up armor, it's quickly like the Riptide's gonna out is gonna outperform it very yeah. quickly. And so, like, what are what am I getting for not taking as good as a Riptide as far as resilience and firepower? Nothing. <laughs> I'm not getting a trade off. Yeah, that yeah. So, well, like you said, if you could do the jump shoot jump, then. Then the the weapon flexibility, the fact that you can kind of hide them a little bit easier, the fact that you can pop them around corners, like it, it's still in most cases it might still be better to take a Riptide, but at least you can make a case for taking Crisis suits at that point. Yeah, and give them that 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 uh, boost move. You know, basically the the two d six movement in the charge phase, whether they're charging or not. Give that to them. Even if they Manta Strike in, because it's a different phase, and like you could, because mm-hmm. you, you could theoretically drop them in and charge somebody if you really wanted to and wanted to make a try, go for the nine inch charge. But give them that ability so they can drop in, unload, and then try to hide. Because that, I mean, that's a yeah. very Tau tactic as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I would not change their point cost any. I think the point cost is where they need to be. They just, they need that extra bit of oomph and the ability to jump shoot jump would give them that. The other thing I would do, and this is this is purely just something that I want to see, um, I would uh, I would make it so they could be troops in Farsight Enclaves. Yeah. We, we had that before. If you take 
if you take set far side enclaves, you can take crisis suits as troops. And will you see them? You won't see them like all, you know, a lot more. You'll still see fire warriors and stuff like that because they're good. But then all of a sudden they're not competing with riptides or ghost keels in, you know, or even stealth suits in that elite category. They're, you know, there are options for troops. So you might see more of them that way. And that, then that also allows Farsight enclaves to actually like have a little bit of melee punch because like they're not like super great in melee, but they've got four attacks. Uh, let's see. I want to say three th- attacks, four attacks. I was looking at it here. Uh, three attacks, three attack, uh, two base, three, three on the side. Oh, that's right. Two, 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 yeah, two base, three. Attacks. I mean, I don't know. Like it's not, they're not great, but like you might see them more. But if you can, if you could then. You could then play with, you know, far side enclaves. You could then play like a very highly mobile, uh, you know, f- shoot and faint and move around and, and do these. And like that's very much something that the far side enclaves would do. Yeah. So like, it just allows well, it allows you to do a lot of cool things with those. Also, too. if you could do the move and then boost back the way you used to be able to, it makes the far side enclave set tenant work better as well because their oh, tenant is yeah, yeah roll, reroll wound rolls of one for models with this tenant when shooting it for shooting attacks against enemy units that are within six inches of the firing model. If I can actually move up to within six of you and then jump back out of charge, like out of a a, a likely charge range mm-hmm. or around a corner somewhere where now you're or allow me to boost forward get out of my greater good range, my six inch greater good range, unload on you and then jump back into greater good range. Yep. That makes that like a very, like a very strong tactical choice to like, I can kind of goad you into coming at me, which again is also very Tau. Yeah. (laughs) The addition of that one ability makes such a big difference into how this unit plays and actually gives it a, a viable space. And then Having that ability also on like XV8 commanders, like uh, XV8, and I'd, I'd say well, let's even give it to the XV85 enforcer suit. I would not give it to the Cold mm-hmm. Star because the Cold Star's trade off is it advance, it moves twenty, it advances twenty. That's its thing. But you know, it gets away just by flying, you know, just by flying past you. But imagine Farsight with himself with that ability. Imagine like any Tau commander with that ability. Tau commanders yeah. would. Be, like right now you don't see Tau like you might see like you said one, maybe two, but mostly you're seeing cheap like fireblades and ethereals to free up points for the f- riptides and the strike squads and stuff that you have that are actually going to do the heavy lifting. This makes them a more it makes it gives them a space, and that's what they need. They need a well defined space, and this would give that to them. Yep. All right. Finally I, th- I think I th- I think that's just the one change that they need. But we're going to move on to our last unit of the episode, and uh, this one was is kind of an, also a doozy because uh, this one is bad. This one <laughs> this one is just actively bad, and it's not bad because there's another unit in this codex that does this job better. It's this unit doesn't do a job, and it doesn't have anybody to compete with it, and it's still bad. And that is the AX thirty nine Sun Shark Bomber. A model that most people probably didn't even realize was in this codex because I don't know that I've I own one and I don't think I've ever seen another one. <laughs> I've I've seen a couple, but usually if people are talking Tau flyers, they're dipping into Forge World. Yes, yeah, for uh, sure. The 
the Sunshark bomber, which is notorious in previous editions for being a bomber that didn't have a bomb and thus couldn't use its pulse bomb generator to generate a new bomb because it had never dropped the previous bomb. Well, they fixed that problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So to put this out there, a Sunshark bomber, it uh, has, it moves 20 to 50. We're, we're just top line, you know, top of its uh, data chart. Uh, 20 to 50 movement. It is a flyer. Uh, flyer roll uh, has all the standard supersonic, airborne, hard to hit, crash and burn. Uh, weapon skill six, because it's a vehicle. Uh, ballistic skill four. Strength six, tough six, which puts it around the same range as a lot of the lighter flyers you see in other armies, like such as Eldar. Uh, 12 wounds and uh, a four up save. And then it's armed with a marker light. A missile pod, which is a two-shot pod, um, two seeker missiles, which need two marker light hits, mind you, to actually be useful. One marker light will not cut it. And then it's accompanied by two MV-17 interceptor drones, each equipped with two ion rifles. Now, the two ion rifles, ion rifles are actually pretty decent gun. Um, and so the fact that you've got four of them effectively attached to the Sunshark bomber at the start of the game... Not bad. Um, if they split off, they are the only drones with a 20-inch movement. Then uh, the actual bombing ability itself, the model may drop a pulse bomb as it flies over enemy units in its movement phase, which, unlike other bombers, it's not once per game. Uh, to do so, after the model is moved, pick one enemy unit that it moved across, roll a D6 for each model in that unit, up to a max of 10, adding one to the result if the unit is infantry, on each roll of 5 up, so 4 up if they're infantry, uh, the target unit suffers one mortal wound. So, on average, you fly over an infantry unit, you're gonna do around five mortal wounds to them. That doesn't seem bad. It's one of the only ways to get mortal wounds outside of, like, w- railguns wounding on sixes in this army. So, why is this such a piece of garbage? I mean, why why is no one taking this? Well... First off, there's the points cost. This thing is, let's see, it's 90 base. The drones themselves are 15 points apiece, so we're at 120. The missile pod is 24, so now we're at 144. The seeker missiles are 5 each, so 154, unless they dropped. I don't think they did. Nope, they did not drop. So they 154, and then the marker light is three points. So 157 points. Now, I asked Dennis to pull out the Drukari Codex because there's a bomber in there that's actually good, and that's the Void Raven bomber. So, Dennis, how about you give us a compare and contrast with the Void Raven? Well, um, first off, the bomb is different. The rules are entirely the same, except it's once per use, and it does mortal wounds on a three-up instead of a five-slash-four-up, which, I don't know, I might say so that's a that's a wash because three up is really good it's going to hit things but four up on infantry you're going to drop the bomb on infantry you're not going to drop it on a monstrous creature for one mortal wound right so but the biggest the other difference it has night shields which gives it a five up invulnerable so that's a big deal. And also, well, the the Void Lances are, are really nice. Yeah, yeah, those are definitely better guns than Ion Rifles. 
and the, I mean, the missiles, you've got one missile type that's Assault D6 or Assault D3. So you've got missiles to take out infantry. You've got your lances to take out big things and a bomb that you can use once per game to just drop on something with a five up and run safe. But past that, the stat line is exactly the same, except it has more leadership on the Void Raven, which is not really going to be much matter for a yeah. flyer. Yeah. So how much does that Void Raven cost? With the missiles, 165. Yeah. See, for seven more points, you get a vehicle that's way better. And then, if I remember right, if uh, you take Cabal of the Black Heart, it also benefits from, like, power from pain and things like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. How, it's like, this does not, you know, it just doesn't work well. It Okay, so it's got its interceptor drones. Well, okay, well, drones, you're... So, save your protocols, right? Well, save your protocols don't work on vehicles. You can't defend it with its own drones. Yeah. The ion rifle, the good mode of firing is a heavy D3. So it's heavy. So if this thing moves, which it has to, it's <sighs> only going to be hitting on fives. The marker light is going to be hitting on fives because it has to move. The seeker missiles, even if you get the two marker lights so you can use its ballistic skill, it's hitting on fives. I think that's the biggest drawback. The other thing about the Void Raven, all of its weapons are assault, so it can move and fire them. Without any penalty. Right. Yeah. 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 The only weapon that's uh, uh, assault on the Sun Shark is the Missile Pod with its two shots at Strength 7, AP minus 1, D3, which I like Missile Pods, but one on this vehicle is not worth it when there's plenty of other ways. A Crisis Suit is a better platform for Missile Pods than this, and that's without the bo- the boost move we want to add to it. Um, <laughs> Seeker Missiles are better on pretty much any other vehicle. Yeah, the you have a flyer that has to move that is loaded with heavy weaponry that it gets no way to work around. And like the interceptor drones. Okay. It's like traditionally like the interceptor drones, they're made to intercept other flyers. That's why they move 20 inches, except their weapon skill or their ballistic skill five. The good fire mode is heavy D three. I mean, the regular one's rapid fire one, which isn't terrible at a 30 inch range, but means that they're hitting on fives. They're hitting other flyers on six because they don't overcome hard to hit. They don't have any benefit. Like, if they had plus one to hit other flyers, that would be something, but they don't. Uh, the drones do have greater good, um, which... But, like, the Sunshark Bomber doesn't have greater good. Most vehicles don't, so that's not unusual, but it's like... Mm-hmm. What spot does this fill in this army? Again, it's like, this doesn't synergize with anything in this army, and it doesn't even synergize with itself. Well, and, and as, you know, as, as Dennis mentioned you're going to drop the bomb over infantry units. Well, this is a codex that is not lacking for better options to kill infantry. Right. Also, uh, something we talked about before the air, the the Void Raven, okay, yeah, its bomb is once per game, but how many times are you going to line up the movement to fly over the unit you want to bomb? Probably once. I'd say once or twice. Once or twice. Is having a weaker reusable bomb that you might get to use twice better than a far better bomb that you can only use once. I don't think it is. I would rather have, give me the one-off bomb that is just, that will just murder infantry over the one that I might annoy some infantry twice with. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, 
like on the flip side, you've the other option is like the you look at the Razor Shark Strike Fighter, which is the same kit just with a slightly different loadout. It's got a burst cannon which it can replace with a missile pod, but I wouldn't because the burst cannon's assault. Like you look at all its weapons, they're all assault weapons. They're ma- granted, it's a fighter that's made to hit things on the ground, whereas the bomber is made to hit things in the air, which itself is ass backwards. But yeah, it's like it's quad ion turrets are assault four and have the same overcharge option as the sun shark. And they add one to hitting targets that can fly. Um, let's see. Yes. Or no, that can't fly. Oh, sorry. I've got that one backwards. Yeah. So they're made like the strike fighter is made to hit targets on the ground. So it's got a ballistic skill of four. It's moving. It's not suffering any penalty to shoot and it's hitting targets on the ground on a three. It's way better. It's way better at doing the job that the bomber is supposed to be doing. Now, granted, the bomber can put out multiple, can put out mortal wounds, but only if you line it up right. Um, it's really, it's like if the interceptors were assault weapons, if they were like a dual ion turret and the razor shark had a quad iron ion turret, those would, that would be a better choice right away. Or if you totally did a redesign. And instead of the interceptors drones, have them be bomb drones. Yeah. That you, in, in addition to flying over, you can, when you break them off, whatever they fly over, they have a one-time use of they go boom. Yeah. Suicide bombs, basically. Suicide bomb drones. Yeah. Uh, that would be very interesting. You just have to buff up the guns on the regular vehicle. Yeah. yeah. But having a, a seeking bomb that you can just launch 20 inches, mm-hmm. that would be kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, that would be pretty cool. I would dr- I would also drop the marker light entirely. I would I, I would just yeah. <laughs> I would drop the marker light, p- replace it with the I would I would honestly I would get rid of the I would give it the the same weapon options that the strike fighter has where it's got the burst cannon or missile pod on the front and just just basically have it do you want the quad turret or do you want the the basically do you want the quad turret or do you want the mortal the mortal wound bombs and then give it the option mm-hmm. for the drones that can then also like suicide bomb away so theoretically like in one turn you could drop well two bombs cuz the drones form one unit when they drop off okay but like so you'd have to figure out like but it's like at that point you could almost just consolidate them down to one data sheet and say, do you want to add the bomb generator or not? Because <laughs> really, that's what it yeah, would come yeah. down to. I don't think there's any benefit in having the interceptor drones be a separate unit. And so I'm like, I'm just because I'm like looking at the Razor Shark Strike Fighter and I'm thinking a gun like make this into like a World War II style flying fortress bomber where it's bristling with a few guns and it's got a bomb generator. And just have one data sheet rather than trying to get two kits out of one model for no reason. Mm-hmm. Which I know is kind of antithetical to the old idea. Like, we didn't get rid of mult- mutilators. Is there any way to not get rid of the Sunshark bomber? <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't really think either one of the flyers are very good. And I don't think they particularly fit with what the army tries to do mm-hmm. with the way that, you know, the army has become, like I said, more kind of synergistic and more about positioning over the last few editions. And things just like the cold star commander is a much better version of either of these. Yes. Okay. You know, it, it, and it's like the, ta- you know, Tau shouldn't necessarily have to have like these aircraft protect, you know, per se, like they've got other units that can do that, you know, heck, 
you could, you, you know, one of the things with Vespid, uh, you know, we mentioned like giving them kind of like a stasis bomb kind of thing. That kind of fills one of the roles right here that you could do something like that with Vespid. And then you've got the Cold Star Commander that can go up there and shoot out and cover cover ground and shoot other planes. I, I don't know that you need either of yeah well and and, and you do have the you know the you do have the two forge you know the forge world barracuda and uh uh tiger shark options which you know tiger shark is essentially a flying riptide and the the barracuda is you know has an ion cannon so it at least has like it's kind of a small like light flyer but at least has at least one powerful weapon on it Mm -hmm. so i don't know they just I've always struggled with finding what the role of these two units are because they just don't seem like they fit with the rest of what the army does. The role was to have a flyer for every codex. Right? Yeah. This, this, honestly, <sighs> these were, these were cash in items. Yes. To try to try yeah. to make sure. Yeah. That every, every codex had something in the flyer role and yeah. And yeah, they they were never. They've never been synergistic. They've never worked well with the rest of the army. They don't do anything the rest of the army needs them to do. Uh, I hate to say it. This. I think it's because these aren't units that ever had a clear role. And well, technically, mutilators didn't either. But okay. Well, let, let's. I mean, mm-hmm. this might be a redesign. Yeah. So part one. I, I like the idea of drone bombs. Yeah. So maybe have the bomber have the drones instead of being like. Like you said, instead of being a data sheet, they're they're drone bombs. All they are to do is, um, once per game, you can send out one or both, or e- each one gets one use, uh-huh. and you send the drone out to be an additional bomb in addition to your one that you fly over, and the drone has a 20-inch range to go bomb Basically something. draw a line 20 inches and... Yeah, and then pick something under that. That would be a way to do it. That is cool. And then maybe have them have a new rule, especially for the bomber of call in the greater good of maybe it targets something and then you can um, have everyone fire at that one thing. And it might be a once per game thing, like, like sort of like the orbital bombardment, but the bomber kind of citing something saying, okay, guys, I'm focused on this. Let's all just bomb it. Mm-hmm. And then call in the rest of the tower just for a one use thing of, we need to hit this thing really hard with everything. Although that goes back into the action although, economy. Thing. Although, um, Oh, there's a stratagem so, well, for that. Well, no, well, actually, that what that makes me think of is, though, there is a Sasea, uh, for the Sasea Sept. Sasea has a stratagem. Use a stratagem at the start of your shooting phase. Pick an enemy unit visible to a Sasea Sept character from your army. That unit and all other enemy units within six inches of it gain a marker light counter. If you could do a marker drop light bomb. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Basically, yeah. have that. would be really cool. Yeah, have that. It's like your options are you can either pulse bomb or marker bomb. Yeah. Because yeah, that would be it, a good way to get like five or six marker lights. Yeah, that would be that would actually give this a vibe. And then you drop the mar- the single marker light from it, and instead it can just fly over. And then you don't have to worry about the like on a f- you don't wor- like just over every turn it just flies over a unit. You pick a unit marker bomb. Okay, remember how yeah. when I play against you guys' Tau, I try and take out the marker light guys first? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is probably a little bit harder to take out than those little guys. Exactly. But, but, no, I mean, so, that's why it's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it also still has the, you still have to position, you still have to right. play the positioning game. You have to fly over the unit you want to, to mark them. And, and Tau don't bomb normal bombs, they bomb light. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that also, that also like allows you, it gives you a different role because, 
most marker lights are short-ish range. Yeah, so they're 36 having inch. something that can, eh, okay, 36, like, you know, so medium range, I guess. Yeah. But having something that can, that can on, you know, turn one, potentially move up to 50 inches, drop a bomb on something on the back line, like that's huge because yeah. then you can start kind of sniping things in the back and you're not just kind of dealing with the immediate frontline threats. You're able to kind of reach out and impact stuff behind lines too. Yeah. No, that, I, I like that a lot. I like the marker light bomb idea a lot. Um, the other thing is, like, I do like the idea of, of bomb drones. We'd have to figure out, like, what the mechanics on that are. The other possibility is allow this thing to take, instead of the interceptor drones, like, first off, just give it a turret. Just give it the same kind of turret that the strike fighter has. Um, and then allow it to take shield drones instead and give it, possibly give it an invuln that way. Like, yeah. while the shield drones are, like, it's the only vehicle that while the shield drones are attached, it actually gets an invuln save. That's a possibility. Or just make the shield drone built in. Yeah, just give it a just give it a internal five shield drone. Yeah, just give it a five. It doesn't need drones. I do, I really don't yeah. think it does. Yeah, it really doesn't. Yeah, but I I think yeah, giving it a way to either do damage or to be a force multiplier. Yeah, that that marker light. I really like the marker light bomb. Yeah, because I think that would yeah that just give that gives it a role that's the that's what it it lacks right now is it it doesn't have a role but then when you've run out of things to really mark like the, you don't need that many marker lights anymore then you can just switch it into the damage role and then it can like just mop up light light infantry yeah i i think that might do it and then a defensive capability of having the internal shield drone yeah yeah, having a having a five, and then again, that would differentiate it from the strike fighter. The strike fighter does not have the um, invuln save, but it's just really good at killing things on the ground. So it's just flying over, shooting at stuff on the ground, mm-hmm. and the the sun shark is dropping marker lights and just being more survivable. It's also the sun shark. There yeah, you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So it's drop dropping light on people. All right, well, we managed to save the cash-in vehicle and make it and give it a roll. I think that's that that is something worth checking out. Ah, so I think that pretty much wraps up uh this episode of Datasheet Doctors. I'm not sure which codex we'll take a look at next. If you have ideas on either units you want to see covered or what f- codex you'd like to see, just be sure to let us know. We told you how to write to us earlier in the show, so you can just send those suggestions to us. We are always looking for new codexes. I think NIDS might be one of the next ones where we have a lot of options for, and I I want to make sure we have Richard on that one. because Exactly. Yeah, we definitely need need our fourth chair on that one. So, uh, so we'll just move on real quick to hobby progress. I am done painting. Now that I'm done painting armies for Midwest Conquest, I can move on to other projects, and so I have been moving on to working on Kevin's Townar. So Woo-hoo. is that what you're going to take to Midwest? No, I'm taking my own town art okay. to, to show me showdown. Cause I mean, match. you can take two. I not in 2000 points. I can't. Um, no. no, I have my, I have my list. Have? I have my list put together for, uh, show me showdown. Um, so do I, uh, 50, it's like 15 shield drones, uh, the town are about 30 or so, uh, fire warriors and strike teams, um, a fireblade, uh, an ethereal, and shadow sun, and a distraction carnif- a ghost kill. <laughs> <laughs> a distraction ghost kill. Because I need something that can go out and try to capture objectives. Because everybody else is going to just be fortressed up around the townar. While the townar, you take 
What's that? Which uh, which weapon are you taking with it? Oh, just the stock, the ion, the triple ion guns, and the okay. the pulse obliterator or the mass driver. because yeah. uh, okay. the the that those are the best. Like the rail guns, the only one shot per turn, which is not good, and the missiles have the minimum range issue. Okay, the the pulse no, driver just yeah. does a lot more damage, and uh, the and then with the 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 triple ion guns are way better than the fusion colliders. Oh, absolutely. That, that's like not even a not even a choice. So yeah, I think it's one of these things. Like if I lose the town R in a game, then I've probably lost the game because that's over half my army. <laughs> but with fifteen shield drones and the ability, because it's a battle suit, I can use the thing where like it acts at full health, even though uh. like even if you've got it down to its bottom bracket, um, and then just yeah, just layering it with uh, like fire warriors. So if you want to charge me, you've got to chew through all that, and I'm going to be putting out a lot of greater good firepower. Playing it as Tau Sept, so I get the fu- the Overwatch on fives. So yeah, I, I I'm it'll be fun to play. It sounds interesting, and not nearly as uh, dependent <laughs> on uh, terrain as like my last army was, where I had to hide it. Oh yeah, my army's not going to be dependent on train either. No, because <laughs> I send the Orion over, drop everyone out of it, and then um, yeah, if you shoot the Orion down, I'll probably be hurting. Like if you lose the town R, yeah. But it'll be fun to see what it can do. Yeah, but uh, so, but yeah, I'm working on on your finishing up your uh, your town R next, Kevin, and then uh, and then I'll probably start working on my like test models for the Blood Angels after that. Nice. So I am working on after Midwest Conquest. I've uh, really kind of gotten aboard the Lord Discordant train, <laughs> and I because they're really good. They so are. I started looking through the. Uh, so I started looking through the uh, the Chaos Codex, and I think this is a list I'm going to try to run for Renegade. So it's Chaos Space Marine Red Corsairs uh, Battalion, three Lord Discordants uh, on Hellstalker. Uh, four units of Chaos Marines uh, with the Reaper Chain Cannon in three of them, and I think a Flamer in the other because I didn't have the points for the Reaper Chain Cannon. Yeah, Flamer. So, uh, And then three Hellbrutes, three Mauler Fiends, and three uh, Blood Slaughters of Corn. The reason why I'm doing this as Red Corsairs, I get extra – there's an extra three command points for uh, having three units of Space Marines. Right. I can take as a Hellforged uh, Soulforged pack, which is the specialist attachment from Vigilus. Um, it basically opens up some strategies and other stuff for uh, demon engines. As Red Corsairs, Hellbrutes can advance and charge in the same turn. So can the, the Lord of Discordance. And then obviously they buff the Mauler Fiend and Blood Slaughters uh, that are all in the same detachment. So effectively, it would be. Uh, 12 things running downfield trying to punch you in the face really hard uh, while four units of Marines just set back and hold objectives. So it feels like a very feels like a very list I would I would enjoy playing because <laughs> it's mostly just melee and yeah. then, you know, a few units of a few units to hold objectives. But I think it's one of those where like because I, I looked at doing this with like using the Lord of Skulls because like the Lord Discordance help it since it's a demon engine or the Chitin. But I kind of like – I think I kind of like having the idea of it being decentralized and having, you know, Mauler Fiends, which have a boatload of attacks. Blood Slaughters have a boatload of attacks. The Lord Discordants have a lot of attacks. Hellbrutes have a lot of attack. It's, you know, it's strength 16. So it's like 
this is an army that would get up on you very quickly. Um, but if you have the ability to take out that number of vehicles, then, you know, you're going to roll over me pretty quickly. <laughs> but it would, I think it'd be fun to play. Then I guess for me, Kevin, I, I, I'm sounding similar to you with, um, I've got two of the squads of Havocs mostly put together. I was toying with the idea of maybe giving them Dark Eldar heads to show them the kind of like Slaneshi type things, but no, I I thought <laughs> the head looked a little weird, and then so I got a second opinion with Robbie said that's too small. Yeah, I said it looked like Sir not appearing in this film from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna give them normal heads, but um, so yeah, Havocs are in progress, and I'm excited to try the um contrast paints when they're out. I probably won't get to them till after um, Show Me Showdown. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the Orion is all. Um, primed, so now I've just got to get paints, and I did have the complaint that um, they didn't have a good green with the GW Air paints, because I want to airbrush, because it's a vehicle. Yeah. Um, and then it got pointed out to me, hey, they're expanding the paint line, so they'll have new purples. Did you say green or purple? Um, you it said, needs to be purple. Okay, you said green earlier. They don't have a good green. They didn't have a good purple. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they don't have a good green either. <laughs> the only purple they had was Jean Steeler purple, which I used to paint Demonettes with. But I don't want to paint that color for the custodes, especially since I already have a deep purple on the custodes I have currently. So I want something that matches for the Orion. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to be working on is getting the Orion. Because um, I decided I need to paint it before putting it together just because even airbrushing, it's easier to hold a part of it than the whole thing. Yeah. Because it's, th- it's a little heavy. The whole thing, like. And yeah. then I got the three um, flamer guys for the custodes to paint as well, and then they'll go pretty. So fast yeah, I only though. have four bottles to paint for for one, um, show one me. of them's honking huge, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then after that, like I said, I've got the um, havocs going. Um, I've got the keeper secrets almost put together because um, that way I'll have keeper secrets and the named one. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, um, custodes and slanesh things. Working on them. Cool, cool. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our uh, episode 197. Uh, next episode will probably be me reporting from Flying Monkey. I'll see if I can get a couple of uh, people on the show to join in. And then after that, I think we get one episode, and then it will be Show Me Showdown cover. <laughs> so yeah, let's see. One ninety seven. So one ninety eight is Flying Monkey. Yeah. One ninety nine. If it's Show Me Showdown, I think. I think we've got one right before Show Me Showdown, then maybe. Well, it's, well, Unless we delay it a little. Well, Show Me Showdown's on the 21st. Yeah. The weekend of the 21st. So it'd be 190. So this 198 would be Flying Monkey. 199 would be two weeks after that, which will hit like the 14th. Unless we want to delay till Flying or Show Me. Well, we could, because then we have our special plans for episode 200. So. We'd be playing kind of fast and loose with the schedule to get it all to line up. We will. We will. <laughs> Maybe 201 will be this. I don't know. We'll figure something out. Anyway, uh, until then, I'm Rob. Kevin. Dennis. Good night. Good gaming. And we can patch up a few things for the greater good.
Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2 No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.